pega um bilhão de dólares e dá na mão de um rico, ele vai depositar numa conta bancária e vai viver de especulação. Mas se você pega esse um milhão de dólares e você divide entre um milhão de pessoas e dá 100 dólares para cada um, você vai perceber que esse dólar vai começar a funcionar, a rodar e fazer o mercado funcionar. As pessoas vão comprar o que comer, vão comprar sapato, vão comprar meia, vão comprar caderno e a economia funciona. Esse foi o milagre do PT. Welcome to Weekends. Uh, I'm Anna Kasparian, and uh, joining me is Nando Vila. Uh, we are doing a special tribute to our good friend and colleague, Michael Brooks, who suddenly uh, passed away on Sunday night of uh, last week. What you just watched was the politician uh, and inspiration for Michael, uh, Lula da Silva, who was a political prisoner until recently. And what he was saying in this interview uh, that Michael conducted was exactly why Michael was so passionate in defending Lula and sharing stories about Lula and honestly informing so many people about uh, what Lula was able to accomplish in Brazil um, as the president. Nando, it's been a really difficult week, and uh, I'm going to try to keep myself together as we do this um, tribute to Michael. I want to open up the floor to you and, you know, just share some of your thoughts. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that always struck me about Michael and was always very inspiring about Michael is that he was ruthlessly committed to winning. You know, he he wanted the left to win. He wanted this to be have mass appeal. And that is why he loved someone like Lula so much because he went just, he just went through the list. Like, okay, who has done it in the past? Who has won? Who has achieved the things I care about in the past? And in the 21st century, that, that is Lula. Lula is the most successful left-wing president in modern times. And so he was like, okay, that's, that's the best guy. I need to study that guy. That guy needs to be the guy I need to model myself after, right? I need to understand what he did to transform his country because I want to transform my world in my time, you know, and that's why he always studied the people who had done it in the past. That's why he was obsessed with studying people's liberation movements. That's why he was obsessed with studying all the great heroes of the past. It was to understand what they did, how they did it so that he could do it now. And, you know, that, that, that audacity in a way is something that we're going to miss so much. I mean, I, I don't have it, you know, I, I'm, you know, to be perfectly honest, I, I, I he was like, no, like we got to win. Like we got to do this. We got to, we got to get out there and actually learn from these people and do it. And, and, and that's something that I, I want to interiorize, you know, I want to absorb it and carry it on. Like we need to do it. And that's just yeah. what he that that was what he was committed to. And that that's that's, you know, outside of like our, you know, personal friendship with him, which was, you know, I think pretty intense. And 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 you know, I learned so much from him. It was that that desire, burning desire to deliver a better world for everyone. He needed to do it. He had to do it. Um, and that's yeah. what we got to do. Yeah, definitely. I, I remember you know, it, it's it's kind of sad to admit this, uh, but I didn't really connect so many dots until his passing because I knew why he loved Lula. Um, but it wasn't just that he had studied Lula and admired him and was inspired by him. He was 
putting the work in, he was putting the work in. I mean, the way that he tried to connect people on the left, you know, especially in this environment where there are all sorts of incentives to engage in ridiculous catfights on social media for, you know, clout chasing purposes. I mean, you see it every day. Mm-hmm. And my, Michael had no interest in that. What Michael would do was find commonalities among us and even commonalities among people who we might not even consider on the left, right? And if if there was any inkling that these individuals wanted a better world, not just a better country, but a better world for working people, he'd find ways to connect them. Mm-hmm. And he would encourage people on the left, uh, especially people like us uh, who do shows, who, um, you know, have public platforms. He would encourage us to keep going uh, when we felt demoralized, discouraged. Uh, it's it's definitely a common feeling, especially with the administration in charge right now, with some of the nonsense you see online. But he would always find ways to get me to refocus and keep pushing. And you always felt like you had a genuine friend on your side who was there for you through thick and thin. And to not have him, you know, in our lives is just utterly devastating. And and I agree with you. Um, I, I wouldn't have thought that I'd have any interest, uh, not that I'd have any interest, but I didn't think I had the capability to carry out what his vision is. And I don't think I could do that alone. I, I think we need to learn from what his message was, what his mission was, and do our best to work together to carry that out. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, this thing that you're talking about connecting people, it's 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 really like an unbelievable skill that he had. I mean, you know, he connected me and Waz, and me and Waz became friends, and he 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 asked me to be a part of the show that they did together every week, Woke Bros on the Black Opinions Matter feed, you know, and I just thought it was hilarious that Michael, like, again, had that audacity He's like, no, Nando should, you know, we should, you know, he should be on. And so then we were doing this show every week where we were doing kind of like, you know, left politics for basically NBA fans, you know, Um, and we were just sneaking it in there um, every week. And, and, and people, you know, the amount of messages I got were like, man, you know, I wasn't a political guy until, until I heard you guys do the thing. And, 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 and now, now I'm into socialism and and stuff. And I'm like, you know, Mike, just saw that, saw that opportunity, saw that we would vibe. He had like the most, the, the best intuition um, on people and how they would, how they would react to each other beyond like whether they fit into the specific neat political categories of the many subdivisions that exist in left on the left. You know, he, he could see beyond those things and say like, you know, these, these, these three people will, will, will vibe, you know, and, and, totally. and it'll, and yeah. and yeah. And, and again, like, he was incredibly aware of meaningful political differences in these, again, subdivisions of subdivisions of subdivisions on the left and um, took them seriously. But he never like branded someone a bad person because they were in a different camp and often would identify people in different camps who were there for, for whatever reason. And he saw that they, maybe they can, maybe they can come to, to, to my camp, to the good camp. And slowly through his friendship and through his charm and generosity and just general kind of being a mensch, you know, like just 
constantly reaching out, checking in with you. And then all of a sudden, like you agree with everything he says and you're like, Oh my God, what, what do you like? <laughs> how did you do that? You know, like he, he, how many people did he do that with countless people, right? Like that he, that he just kind of did this constant work of political education, but also just deep friendship. Right. Yes. Yes. Yeah. It was, it was just so important. Like I, I learned so much through him. I mean, he opened up, um, a political world for me that I desperately needed uh, because I've been in my own bubble really for, for the last 13 years working at TYT. I love it there. But um, when you're at the same place for so long, uh, it's hard to be exposed to different ideas. And so I'm going to be as transparent as possible with the Jacobin audience. You know, some people who uh, read Jacobin, and by the way, you should absolutely subscribe, watch Jacobin videos, um, you know, I, I'm going through a political journey right now, uh, and I'm finding my political identity. I, I don't think that I've stopped evolving. And so I want people to understand that and be open to that the way that Michael was, because if there are people who are receptive to socialism and, and, and really changing this world for the better for working class people, we have to work with them and, and keep having these conversations. This dialogue is important because if we stay in our own little bubbles and, you know, um, constantly look for confirmation bias, uh, and we look for those echo chambers, we're not going to convince anyone of anything, right? It's the system will remain the same. Um, and I love that about Michael, that he did not judge if you came from a different political view or perspective. He wanted to engage in that dialogue and he did it confidently because he knew he was right. He was persuasive and he had, and by the way, the swagger was insane. Yeah. Like I've been watching endless videos of Michael. Um, I mean, I never missed an episode of his show, but um, I've been watching more of the talks he did outside of the Michael Brooks show and the majority report and he was just, he was cool as fuck, man. He just yeah, he was. was. Cool. I mean, yeah, you guys need cool. to watch. He was, he really was. Like the, the Mill series that he did for Lafayette College, incredible. Uh, yeah. Watch the whole thing. We're going to have a few clips today to share with you. But he was witty, funny, obviously incredibly smart, just talented all around. Yeah, I mean, with you, I remember, like, because we, we often spoke about you, like, when you guys were first starting to become friends, and, and you know, it would have been, all the incentives were there for him to, like, do, like, a a takedown or something on his show and be like, look at these liberals, they're just dumb liberals, you know what I mean? Like, that's, there is an incentive there, he would have been pretty, you know, he probably would have gotten a lot of traction with that, and people would have gotten riled up and, and into it, but he saw you, like, as um you know a person with an ability to speak to a mass audience and that's what he always wanted you know like i think that you are talking about how much you learned from him you know i think secretly if, if you, you may not realize it but you taught him a lot as well um about what we do um he wanted that he wanted he wanted your ability to i mean i've seen it we, we did that college tour together what was that 2016 you know, like kid, college kids coming up to you, like you were, you know, like you were this, this huge role model and celebrity toward them. And he wanted, he wanted to learn that because he wanted to take his message to all those people as well. You know, so mm -hmm. I think he saw you and he was like, no, we're, we're going to, we're going to bring her to our team. We're not going to keep her on the other team. We're going to bring her <laughs> to our team. And, you know, and he fucking did it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And he's, and again, it, 
he's right. You know, that's the thing. I mean, I'm not, when you're in an echo chamber for a long time, I mean, it's not easy to persuade anyone of anything. And, um, he was just always armed with the facts. So well read. I mean, I don't even know how he had the time to keep in touch with everyone the way he did. Cause he, he had a deep connection with many people. And on top of that, I feel like he was like reading 30 books a day. It was insane. Yeah. And so he, he, and he had this and like photographic memory. Yeah. 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 So he could recite things about history that you might read in a, in a history book or whatever and, and, you know, make note of it, but you might forget. He just would not forget. And he could recite those facts and those historical events and put things in historical context, which is important to understand where we are today and, and how we need to get ourselves out of this, um, you know, hyper-capitalized system where everything is commodified, including things that should be considered a human right, should not have a profit motive behind them. Um, so we have so many videos to share with you. We wanted this tribute show to be a little different from um, other tribute shows. There, there, were, there have been so many wonderful programs, um, but we wanted this to be a little more video heavy. We're going to bring on all sorts of uh, friends, colleagues, people who inspired Michael to um, commemorate him and celebrate him. But uh, for another 15 minutes, we're going to just uh, discuss some of the our favorite videos featuring Michael. And so this next one is just a little snippet of an interview that Michael Brooks had with Cornell West, one of his biggest inspirations. And I think when you watch this next clip, you'll understand why. I, I think of how in, when Trump was running for president, he had some, let's just say, eccentric doctor put out a report saying that, oh, you know, Donald Trump, he's in fantastic health. You know, don't don't worry oh, about I what do you remember see. That. Right. Yeah. Don't worry about yeah. what you yeah. see in front of your face or how he eats or how he's always having an emotional meltdown. This guy is in global world class health. And as you're talking, I'm almost is okay, so that's so there's the echo throughout history if we want to understand fascism in American context, the connection between innocence, adolescence, and domestic and international imperialism. And then Trump is, I mean, yeah, he's the sales guy. There's no problem here. We can all go back to sleep. The stock market's going great. The virus is going to be over. It's going to be unbelievable. It's going to be great. Is that the kind of psychological retreat you're talking about that correlates with the violence that we see in in the state policy? I, I think that that's a fascinating and uh, in some ways a uh, compelling interpretation, brother. I mean, one way of looking at it is looking at our present moment through the lens of the greatest American play written by the one and only Eugene O'Neill in The Iceman Cometh. We just had our dear brother uh, Denzel Washington uh, playing Hickey, who is a the major figure in that play uh, on Broadway just a few years ago. It, it's the the most grim and bleak of all American plays, uh, going all the way back to Timon of Athens or King Lear of the one and only Shakespeare himself. And what does he say? He says, well, Hickey is a seller of dreams. It's very different than Death of a Salesman, who has a dream, but he's selling something else. Hickey sells dreams, just like Trump. Who asked that question? So that was, yeah, I know, I know. That's that's what part of the reason why I chose that clip. I know that it's more Michael heavy than and than Doctor West heavy, but uh, the reason why I, I like that part of the interview is because he was just so in tuned, um, and 
came at things from a perspective that even Dr. Cornell West hadn't thought of, you yeah. know, and that interview was incredible. Everyone should watch the full thing. Yeah. I love the moment where Dr. Cornell West is like, uh, that's a, that's a fascinating interpretation, brother. And Michael just like smiles, you know, like, he's like, I know, yeah. <laughs> I know it is. Yeah. <laughs> it's so good. I remember when he did that interview afterwards, we were like all texting, you know, uh, because Cornell West words about Michael, like you're my soul brother, brother, you know, like kind of thing. Like, you know, I know how much that must've meant to him specifically, you know, because of everything that he was like having Cornell West say those exact words to him were, must've been like one of the top five moments in his life. You know, like it just, everything that he's ever worked for everything, like just culminating in that kind of specific comment. It was, it was great. Yeah, and in the last year, Michael conducted so many interviews that he dreamt about doing, um, including Dr. Cornell West. Uh, he interviewed Noam Chomsky recently. That was fantastic. Of course, Lula da Silva. That was a dream of his. And I'm so happy it came to fruition. But it's also tragic because he was really just getting started. I mean, yeah. the trajectory of his career was so impressive. And, you know, in, in private communications... Um, I can tell you all that he had increasing clarity on how he wanted to move forward and, and more importantly, what he wanted to reject in media. And uh, we're, pro we're going to talk about cancel culture a, a lot today uh, because that was something that he found incredibly toxic and a, a detriment to the leftist movement. And I think that he's absolutely right. I see people playing into it every day and it really does nothing to accomplish um, anything of substance in society. Uh, so, you know, I, in fact, uh, he does uh, talk about it uh, a little later. We're gonna show you a clip where he uh, discusses how the intellectual dark web, you know, something he wrote a book about, was able to exploit the weaknesses of the left. And those weaknesses exist. We need to be hyper aware of them. Um, so let's go to the next clip. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, he had done a talk at Lafayette College. And in this next clip, he was asked about Israel and Palestine and, and why it is that he supports Bernie Sanders. Let's take a look. Hi. Hi. So my first question um it says on your Twitter that you're Jewish. Am I getting this right? No. <laughs> Is it the right Twitter? On my Twitter bio, it says I'm Jewish? No, but like in your tweets. I just, I don't want to be wrong. I, yeah, I have Jewish background. I'm just okay. trying to think of... Okay, uh, so as someone with a Jewish background, yes. how do you feel about Bernie's plan for Israel, especially as someone concerned with foreign policy. I love it. It's an absolutely necessary. My Jewish values teach me to oppose apartheid. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Could you elaborate, please? I mean, there, there really isn't that much to elaborate on. I mean, it, have, has anybody ever been not only to Israel, but also to the... Yeah. Have you been to... Have, I've but, been to the West Bank. Have you been to the West Bank? Have you been to Gaza? You went to Gaza? I went to the border. Oh, okay. But not to Gaza. You can't be in Gaza. Well, you, no, I know people have gone to Gaza. You could definitely go to Gaza. Um, so for me, my politics are built on a base of, you know, economic justice and actually really like anti-racism, in some ways as distinct from some of this sort of woke stuff in a way, but... 
when I was, I was already, look, I grew up, you know, I was pretty connected to left politics, so I always knew growing up about the travesty that was the human rights situation there. And I knew that people had think people I admired, like Nelson Mandela said, you know, South Africa is going to not be properly free until the Palestinians are free. In 2006, I believe, I, wrote, I read a piece by a guy named Tony Jutt in the New York Review of Books, who was a really important Jewish scholar. And he just said, like, li- the argument was that, like, literally this is childish. Like, the idea that you have an ethnostate or a religious state, if you're committed to any type of broad-based social, economic equity, and civil society, it doesn't work. Just so clear and um, confident in the message because it's right. It's the right message. Um, And he does it with the swagger. I mean, come on. The slightly unbuttoned shirt with the gold chain and just the swagger. I love it. I love it. And um, there's no one like Michael. No. Just like, yeah, I, I read a piece in 2006 uh, in the New York Review of Books. You know, like, it's like, what? <laughs> you read a piece in 2006? That was 14 years ago. Uh, I know. You know, like you said, like the ability to recall, the ability to draw, like a question that is straightforward. Like, what do you think about bird policy to Israel? You know, like, and he starts drawing from Nelson Mandela. He starts drawing from this New York Review of Books uh uh, article. He starts drawing from like a genuine sort of sense of humanism. You know, like he doesn't just say like, "Well, I think that the you know his thing on the the settlements, like you know, like some specific thing about it." You know, he 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 frames it in this kind of universal humanistic way, drawing on the traditions of great men that he deeply admired, like Nelson Mandela, the real Nelson Mandela, not the sort of you know, everyone now in the United States has to say they love Nelson Mandela, you know, um, but he understood the real Nelson Mandela, you know, and he could draw from that um, to respond to this, you know, young, earnest college kid who's, I don't know, trying to, in a way, trying to bait him. And he, again, he, and, and, and the confidence in his rejection of this idea that his Jewishness should give him some sort of authority unique authority to speak on this issue or not speak on this issue, you know, like, which has become kind of a tenant on the liberal left, which is that, you know, black issues have to be spoken about by black people and that's it. And Jewish questions mm-hmm. have to be spoken by people and that's it. And it's kind of, you know, he rejected that so thoroughly and deeply. He hated that. You know, he saw yep. it was deeply divisive. It was, in Congress with a project of cross international cross racial solidarity. He, he, he understood that that was a method to divide and not unique. So he just rejects that premise and he even laughs it off with this, with this question. I mean, you know, I mean, who knows like where, where she found that. I mean, he definitely, he never tweeted about it for sure. It was definitely not in his Twitter bio, but like she must've heard it somehow, you know, that he had some, Mm -hmm. you know, Jewish uh, background, but he just, he just, rejected that you know he was like that, that that's yeah. ridiculous that you would even bring that up it doesn't matter you know so yeah definitely i mean it, it's funny because you're probably right i interpreted the way she framed the question a little differently um because he has been critical of the israeli government uh very mm-hmm. critical because he's against apartheid it's that plain and simple right it has nothing to do with his personal identity uh it has everything to do with human rights and and opposing apartheid full stop period And uh, the way that she framed it made me think that she was 
confused how someone who is Jewish could be so highly critical of the Israeli government. But, you know, who knows? The way she framed the question was weird, but the way he answered it was exactly what you could expect from Michael. It was just a masterful way of clearly stating what he finds um, morally repulsive, morally wrong, while also uh, talking about the importance of uplifting people, you know? And um, look, I promise uh, later in the show, there are going to be some clips uh, that show you the other side of Michael because he was funny as hell. Um, And there were moments when I was down and in in a dark place and I'd go for walks listening to his funny content and it would pull me out of any type of depression I was feeling. Um, But we're going to go to some of the clips that you chose, uh, Nando, because um, this next one has to do with uh, right-wing populism. Uh, recently, there was a big debate in the you know left media world about whether left-wing pop. Uh, I'm sorry, right-wing populism exists, and I totally agree with you. I think this is the best example, one of the best examples of Michael tackling something with such nuance. Take a look. So I've seen some people say that Glenn, you know, the, taking this stupid cheap shot that it's like, oh, so if he listened to the racist more, he would be a real populist. That's obviously not what Glenn is referring to. And that is the type of lazy, bad faith bullshit that disgusts and repulses everybody. What he's referring to is that Steve Bannon has said on multiple occasions that he would, as an example, raise taxes on top marginal earners. He's kind of indicated that he would do something about infrastructure uh, and and kind of hinted at a couple of other things, which, let's peel it back, would amount to basically Clinton-era sort of third-way economics, ironically. So Glenn is right in terms of what he's pointing to vaguely, but actually the specifics there are wrong. It would not be a, f- a fully economically populist policy at all. And the thing that always the basic dividing line, please watch Dustin Guastella and I go into this, is the relationship to organized labor. Organized labor is the actual fulcrum of alternative power to capital. These guys don't like, you listen to Steve, and this is where if you listen to Steve Bannon or, or and you look at the policies pursued by these guys, it's country club bullshit. They hate labor unions. Tucker Carlson makes a ton of individually discreet, accurate points about inequality and middle-class disappearing, whatever, always turns it into xenophobia and race baiting and occasionally a modest policy push, never labor. Yeah. I mean, what I love about this clip is that he took a debate that was like raging uh, on the left and, and, and there was all manner of recriminations and it got pretty fraught at, at certain points. And he both, rejected the urge to, you know, cancel someone like Glenn Greenwald, you know, sort of granting him good faith and recognizing his immense contributions to the world with all his reporting and all that stuff. And then he really zeroed in on the problem with the idea of something like right-wing populism in a perfectly analytical and precise way which is the the relationship to organized labor. He zeroed in so perfectly without doing any of the moralizing that you see often, which is like, they're really just a bunch of racists and whatever. And it's like, he he like recognizes that kind of thing, but like 
we, he, he, he zeroes in on the real kind of substantive problem with them and cuts through all the noise. You know, like he, he really was able to take that debate, grant both sides kind of good faith interpretations of it, and then show the real truth through very sharp analysis. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And and what I love about his commentary uh, about right-wing populism is that he is able to identify the strategy that's being implemented by the Tucker Carlson's of the world, and he informs people about it. So you know that when Tucker Carlson goes on this anti-Amazon spiel, when he talks about corporatism, you know exactly why he's doing it. He's not doing it because he actually wants to look out for the working class. He's absolutely right that Tucker Carlson immediately pivots to the xenophobia, to the hatred, uh, to the anti-immigration policies. And it's important for people to be able to identify that. Because I remember the first time I came across a Tucker Carlson video where he was saying all the right things. And I'm like, what is his play here? What is he trying to do? And Michael had this ability to really like, clarify and crystallize. And uh, it was important. It really is. Because, you know, uh, I I think that there are well-meaning people on the left who might not be aware of what's going on. They might hear a statement like that and think, no, no, that sounds pretty good. Maybe Tucker's on our side. But of course he's not. And and we need to be able to identify that. So we have more videos. But for now, I think I want to call one of our good friends, uh, Bashkar Sankara on, who was also good friends uh, with... Michael collaborated uh, and, and shared ideas on Jacobin. Um, so, Bashkar, thank you for doing this. And, uh, you know, I want to open up the floor to you. Yeah, well, well thanks. Thanks to you both for, for doing the show. And, and I, I really, it's nice uh, seeing the clips and it's nice uh, actually hearing Michael and, and seeing, you know, what kind of legacy he left behind. You know, yesterday I got a chance to listen to the first episode of Weekends because my last exchange with Michael was actually him wondering what I thought about the Vivek Chipper interview, which he thought went well. And I did not watch it up to that point. I was driving all day on Saturday. It was actually the first episode of Weekends that I watched. Then obviously after the news on Monday, uh, you know, I just told him I'd hit him up later after I got a chance to watch it. You know, I thought I had all the weeks and, and months and, and years and decades to do that. I, I never got that chance. Um, so I couldn't bring myself after Monday to listen to it, but I finally did. Uh, yesterday, and it was even more heartbreaking than I, than I thought it would be because it kind of it opens with with Anna saying, you know, we missed you, and it, and it opens with him saying back something like that, you know, I missed you guys. But then, you know, I got through by just like listening to his opening commentary, which was deep, complex, and nuanced. But he knew how to set it up, how to bring the listener along with him. It was just instinctively. He knew how to how to instruct, and he knew so many things that I think many of us are just are just learning. You know, at the start, you know, we we've known each other since 2013, but we weren't really close until maybe 2016 or so. And a lot of our early interactions were him saying, "Can you edit this piece? I'm really bad at writing," uh, and him saying, "You know, I'll teach you how to do media stuff." Looking back at our emails, I actually gave him like pretty good, like gave him feedback that was like pretty critical on certain things, like (laughs) couched with a bit of compliment sandwiches or whatnot. But then in return from him, what I mostly got because he was too nice was just, you know, sit up straight, stop swaying, you know, little things like that. (laughs) It was was much more, um, more, more delicate, but um, you know, 
Anyway, I, I, I actually talked a little bit already in the, um, you know, bit that I wrote, um, you know, Monday night when I was still in kind of a state of uh, shock over his his passing and a bit on the Majority Report show on, on, on Tuesday. But so I want to focus on on the politics, I guess, as my remark. But I do want to mention that in many ways, the things we say about Michael, um, the fact that his he was a really good friend, that there was kind of a warmth and like a profoundness to his interactions with his friends, just from the way that every single time we got off the phone or, or, or we're saying goodbye to each other, he would just say, you know, take care, brother, or see you soon, brother, or something like that, which, uh, you know, we would talk on the phone instead of my text message a lot. Uh, he'd remember birthdays, you know, check in about loved ones if you knew there was something going on in the family or whatever, whatever else, which is, you know, not unusual behavior. This is how friends should interact with each other. But I think especially among millennials, especially among a lot of the professional types in the media world, it just doesn't, it doesn't, it's not always there. And I think what he was searching for was this deeper sense of interaction that, you know, I associate a lot with, you know, my, my relatives, my family, um, you know, kind of uh, like the, the camaraderie you have in families. A lot of the camaraderies you have in like immigrant families, especially, I think. Um, and, you know, I think, I think in a way, maybe that's why he kind of uh, connected with so many of us from, from that kind of, um, you know, background. This is a convoluted way of saying that Michael is an honorary POC. So we're going to, we're going to uh, give him that title finally. Uh, but then the last thing was also, you know, he absolutely loved his friends. He would always talk about, you know, what Waz was up to, especially he talked up constantly how great Anna was, sending me clips. He was encouraging me for a couple of years now or for, you know, at least a year and a half to start collaborating with Ben Burgess, which, I, which I've started uh, to do a lot more in recent months. And it's been you know immensely rewarding. And he was also a hater, too. And I think that's the part that's lost. Like, like the, the St. Michael narrative is really is really nice. But he combined his love for his friend with uh, just you know, a, a few, a few people and a few like, kind of, like <laughs> personalities. I don't mean individual personalities, but I mean like things that he didn't like on the left. He would just like roast consciously and, 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 and viciously, which is like, you know, in other words, like by some of the depictions, I think, um, I think we shouldn't lose sight of that because we don't want to hollow out and flatten out this, this figure or make him seem like he was just, you know, boring, because he was many things, but he was never boring. And and the last thing I'll kind of get to on the personal front is that, you know, in my obit, I mentioned in passing med meditation as part of his, you know, um, his background that was important. But I, I do think it was it was really vital for him to cultivate a better internal life and find meaning. It was something that I never took seriously at all. The few times that he tried to broach it or talk to me at, at length about the value that he found in it, I would at best lightly listen or more often just kind of make it into a joke, which he enjoyed and tell him that my family came to the U.S. to watch action movies and eat fast food and to escape that Eastern. <laughs> but um, I really do wish I engaged with him, you know, about that, because I think he used it the same way others used religion or philosophy or, you know, it's not just this route, but to in a way feel more connected with the with the universe, to, to feel a way not not just to think about his own needs and what him and his 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 family and his friends needed, uh, but to uh, try to 
put himself in other people's shoes to try to kind of look beyond a lot of the BS of day-to-day -day life. And I think it was perfectly compatible. If anything, it helped fuel and deepen his commitment to, to left-wing um, thinking. And, and I think that's all to say that socialists need to be empathetic and we need to um, ha have that. And empathy is slightly different than, than solidarity. I think we need both. Solidarity is a more political act, but I think empathy can help, help fuel solidarity. And there is no socialism without the moral and the ethical. Uh, especially me, you know, my background was, was more from the beginning as a kind of harder Marxist background. And we like to consider ourselves proponents of scientific socialism. And there's, there's sometimes not a lot of room for, for the moral and the, the ethical. And I think Michael managed to retain uh, what was profoundly, first and foremost, a deeply moral worldview, even as he moved towards becoming, you know, by the end of his life, a somewhat orthodox Marxist. And I, I don't mean that as a pejorative, you know, that's, that's a compliment on the Jackman YouTube channel. Yes. Um, but, um, but I, I guess, I guess the only thing, you know, I, I have left to say is just politically, I think it's worth getting into some of Michael's political convictions, especially the last few years of his life. And some of them, I, I even disagreed with his emphasis, but I think it's worth laying out. You could see it in his last like, year or so of videos, you know, in general, what was overarching was a sense of pessimism about the state of the left in the U.S. today, especially post um, Bernie Sanders. And me and him would sometimes debate, for example, how or, or why to criticize AOC, for instance. You know, he was a fan of the whole. And by the way, you know, um, this isn't there's been a recent rash of criticism about AOC uh, around a speech that I thought was pretty good, but this is just in general, the criticism of maybe her commitment and willingness to use some of the capital she had earned to support Bernie and a host of other things. But, but in other words, all that's, that's to say that there was a time when Michael was, was quite poor and when we met, he was quite precarious in his work environment and whatnot. And the last year and a half had been great at a professional level at a financial level, he was finally able to get himself to get healthcare, to get, um, you know, pay off some debts, to, to help support uh, loved ones, all these other things he wanted to do. And his platform and profile was going, only going up and up and up. And the easiest route to just maintain his position would just be to say, everything's great, kumbaya, kind of a, a left positivity approach. But, but he was really concerned, uh, like, like both Nando and Anna said, said earlier, um, both the guys said was that he was concerned with winning. You know? So he, he was quite depressed by the, the outcome of, of um, how quickly a lot of the, the language of Bernie Sanders had seemingly faded from, from the left or maybe how some of the key lessons of the campaign were, were being forgotten, how a lot of the left kind of felt like they were over Bernie instead of trying to learn about what Bernie managed to do. Because before Bernie, we were like 0.2% support. And Bernie is a huge failure because he got to like 35, you know? Yeah. Uh, so in other words, he supported the key demands, of course, of the Black Lives Matter movement. He was a vehement opponent, both his politics and his personal life, of, of racism, of police violence, of all forms of oppression. But I think he was afraid that we were going back to the pre-2006 days of overemphasizing spontaneous action and that the lack of organization on the left and structures that that worked and were democratic would open the door towards the NGOization of movements. 
and a corporate blackwashing, um, akin to greenwashing of the environmental movements. We shared and discussed with each other the Cedric Johnson article to that effect. Uh, I think afterwards, he had Cedric, Cedric on to, to talk about it. So, you know, in other words, he, he emphasized again and again the role of mass demands, like a universal jobs program, Medicare for all, the continued central role of organized labor, like was in that, that, that clip you guys played earlier. But he wanted to incorporate demands against oppression into this working class framework to save it from liberals and to save it from self-described radicals in academia. He didn't want us to just not talk about it or leave it unaddressed. He, he wouldn't be someone to say, you know, oh, women should talk less about sexism or black and brown people should talk less about racism and so on. But he wanted to put it in a framework to actually win because he thought mm -hmm. this was he took. In other words, he took those demands more seriously than a lot of the people who just do performative politics because they're content with just the crying oppression for, for you know, whatever reason, even, even earnest reasons. He was really just thinking about um, uh, winning. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, yeah, that's that's basically all, all I have. Um, you know, my no, that was great. That is, yeah. I mean, I... Um, I mean, what you just said reminds me, I mean, I came across a story th this week that I, you know, I, I had that habitual urge to text Michael and Nando about it because we would text each other um, stories all the time. And it was about how, you know, Congress agreed that uh, they would rename military bases uh, that are named after Confederates. And they also funded the Pentagon, uh, you know, yeah. 700 something billion dollars. So it's it goes to what Michael talks about often, which is the performative politics, uh, which, you know, latches on to this like so-called woke culture. But when it comes to, you know, like the actual policies that make an impact, I mean, we're still terrorizing black and brown people across the globe, you know, um, and that matters and renaming buildings, sure, but I guess that's great, but it's not nearly enough. I mean, it's, again, the, the theater, the political theater, the performative politics, and the aesthetics of change, uh, which I think woke culture um, contributes to quite a bit. Um, so we do have one video that we want to go to, uh, Bashkar. And as I was watching this, uh, he did mention you in it, which is why I saved this clip for your portion of this tribute. So let's take a quick look, and we'll discuss. And Lula was really kind of like the... The, the equivalent of Chavez on the other side, according like he was considered a, a very moderate leftist mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. famously, um, you know, wrote a letter to investors in the lead up to the 2002 election saying, "I'm not going to mess with, you know, our, our relatively orthodox fiscal and monetary policy." Right. Um, and you know, he lifted a lot of people out of poverty, um, and but that was through a it, it wasn't by dismantling capitalist structures as much as it was skimming some wealth off the top. And, and distributing a lot of it to the poorest twenty percent. So my question to you is like, where, like, what was your position on those debates? Because Lula drew some fire from from people on the left in Brazil and international commentators right, right. Uh, for kind of selling out the PT's socialism of yesteryear because it used to be a more radical left wing. Right. So I I think that it's it's. It's a dialectic because I think on one hand. I have very little patience for, it kind of relates back to his question, like a lot of the critique that came against Lula was people who were not doing anything, right? Like right. there was that element of, you know, well, 40 million people are getting lifted out of poverty, but I don't like X, Y, and Z. Well, you know, all these incredible accomplishments are happening. 
but I don't like X, Y, and Z. Now, I think Lula, look, I think he's objectively the best president of the 21st century, and I also think even just in terms of what he did on foreign policy, given Brazil as a mid-ranked country, is extraordinary. I obviously also think Chavez was a great president, absolutely. But I also think that the lesson, particularly of a place like Lula, should be very sobering for people on both sides of that equation. Because, I, like my friend Bashkar Sunkara, who founded Jacobin, this dog is amazing. It is. Just, hi! Just doesn't care. How are you doing? <laughs> That's why she's so cool. Um, he said, you know, he became a Marxist because of his conservative. Like, he's like, by temperament, I wish that a social democratic model would work. But the way capitalism works, it never seems to be durable. So, yes, you had a presidency that lifted tens of millions out of poverty. The economy did great. Things worked very well. He not only he acquiesced to all sorts of problems. I mean, he, he's been really upfront. He basically was like, look, by the time I was becoming president, I wanted to get rid of hunger in this country, period. And I was, able to, I was willing to negotiate other things. And he did. He got rid of hunger. So um, I love how he mentions people in his life, like in his personal life, um, you know, when he's carrying out his work, when he's answering questions from those students. By the way, you should watch that full, um, you know, series from Lafayette College because he had so much patience as well. I mean, there were a lot of students that were trying to challenge him, his beliefs, who he supports, who he loves. And he, again, goes back to um, historical context to answer those questions. But Bashkar, I wanted to get your thoughts. Well, that I was the first time I, I heard that clip. But yeah, that is typical, Michael. Like he would talk to you about an idea. And then five years later, he would cite the thing that he might have learned or, or, or got from an engagement or a dialogue and then cite you, which is just not necessary. It's not really how, how it works. We're on the left. We're constantly debating and exchanging ideas together. But I think he felt the need to kind of give, give credit. And in part, he was fostering a sense of community. So you could say that in the lead up to maybe 2017, when he was asking, like Anna and I, he was asking us to be like TMBS crew or whatever else. Like, there's a logical sense where it made sense to build a, a channel. You're going to get people who already have a profile of their own audiences. They're going to mix in with your audience, and you're getting them to be regulars in the show. It's good for everyone, whatever else. But by the end, like he he won. Like was definitely branching out to guests that that didn't have audiences. He was giving them an audience, and and a lot of things he did just didn't really make sense, including this channel, to be honest. And that's the last thing I want to talk about, which is that, you know, like Michael taking, like being a part of, of creating this channel didn't really make sense in, in 2020. Like he was going to do two live shows for us. He was already just absolutely like had the most limited time, the most demanding schedule of any of my, my friends that I, that I know. But what he wanted it to do was to help create an institution. And also beyond that, he wanted left-wing media to be both personable and to be uh, entertaining. And he ended up liking the stay-at-home lectures, but I think our model was meant to be shorter and punchier. He was a little bit afraid at first that, you know, he couched it carefully, but that it would be, um, like, too long-winded, too academic or, or, or whatnot, because the goal was to have a limited barrier to entry. And obviously, we're going to... Um, 
uh, keep going. We're going to keep broadcasting in some form um, every every Saturday at one Eastern, and we're still investigating what what to do with the rest of the channel. But we definitely want to continue. It's obviously very hard without Michael's talent because one, he was just one of a kind. Like uh, someone, uh, like I, I actually tweeted in April or May that he was uh, top five um, dead or alive you know, broadcasters, like period. Uh, I constantly told him that, like we, it was a back and the forth joke. He told me I was the same for publishers. It's obviously still, still true. He was incredible on his own right. It wasn't just like for a leftist, he was funny. Like he was just, uh, you know, hilarious. He, he, he made everyone around him better. Uh, you know, it's easy to look good when you're playing on a team with like Giannis or LeBron or something. So bad basketball analogy. Uh, so we're, we're going to obviously have to figure out uh, what what to do, uh, but we definitely want to uh, continue. We definitely are going to keep checking out to see what, what's going to be done on the TMBS front. I know Michael's family has plans for a foundation that I think we should all support and keep an eye out for, for it, when it when it comes out. So everybody involved in his network, I think, feels a loving connection with each other, even if we don't know each other that well individually because because we were told a million things about each other uh uh you know by michael and you know he fostered that sense of of of, of community and kinship and it wasn't yeah. necessarily yeah. to an end but it definitely helped us build um something so i'm so glad for you guys doing this show i'm so happy that we have all these great guests who are going to say a few words about about michael so i think that's it for me but um but thanks again for doing this, and thank you for everyone tuning in and for showing your your love to 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 Michael. You know, it's something that he really um, he he saw a little bit of, but I don't think he fully realized the impact that he had on so many people while he was here. Yeah, Bashkar, thank you so much. Um, just beautiful words, and um, you know, I'm really I'm really happy that again Michael opened up this world to me, uh, including. Uh, introducing me to Bashkar and and again making these connections that are so important. Uh, so I want to bring on um, Matt Leck, who is uh, the super producer for the Michael Brooks Show. Um, Matt, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you guys for doing this. I'm glad to be here. So I just wanted you know to give you an opportunity to share your thoughts, your memories uh, of Michael. You know, this is obviously not easy to do, but I, I know that I've personally found a lot of comfort in in hearing about people's personal relationships with him. Yeah, so um, I started working with Michael on the Majority Report in October 2015. And you're right from the start, he's, that was when he took ownership of his day on the Majority Report. And so you can look at the week-by-week week rundown and see the international, like, um, terrorism in Burundi, right? That's a Michael day. You don't even need to check. <laughs> And you, know, you talk about like not making sense for what his uh, strategy was. We didn't care that those days got less clicks because like the, the more we did that, we knew there was a few people who would, who would value that sort of thing a whole lot. And so, you know, you're talking about Lula earlier in April on April 19th, 2016 was the first time he devoted a majority report to Lula. And um, I'd been working with him on Two Dope Boys as his uh, producer for that for a few months by then. And we'd been getting really close. And basically, Michael Days was when I was when I was the second Mike on Majority Report. So I basically came into my own as a broadcaster on those days. And 
I was just I've been going through some of those old episodes, and it was just amazing because that that four nineteen two thousand sixteen episode with Anthony Pereira about Lula, the hidden story behind the Brazil crisis, which is uh, the whole what was going on with Dilma and Lula at that time, is that was the first show he and I did in the studio alone, um, and those were such fun days because you know Bashkar was talking about Saint Michael and the amount of joy I got from coming in and just joking with Michael in the mornings, uh, doing voices for like two hours, basically processing the news. Um, like the tip of the iceberg was what he did on, on recordings, right? Like the Michael yeah. loved that stuff. Uh, <laughs> like if you had bar, he would go into that stuff and they got a lot of voices that everyone knows, but he'd also had voices for like sort of, you know, personalities on the left that he wanted to satirize. That's, you know, and it was, it was so fun to, and that's where Sam broke down on the Memorial show on Tuesdays. Cause this job is tough. It's tough to stare into the abyss every single day. And uh, we, I've been doing it for a half a decade with that guy and he made it, he brought joy to it, which is, it, it's just such a difficult thing to do. And I think people appreciate that in, in our broadcast too. Um, we always try to keep level D. Yeah. And um, I, I want to ask Matt, like, did he have any effect on, on, on your politics, you know, aside from like the, you know, just working together all the time. And um, like, did he make you think differently about, about politics? Yeah, I would say uh, definitely. I think the trajectory Bosker has him on with the more sort of um, sort of studious Marxism, I think over the last four years that I, I think we, I went on that journey with him to a certain extent one of the things that I also liked is one of the first episodes we did, we basically, somebody asked about foreign policy books and then I mentioned the Kinzer book and he mentions the Kinzer book, just different ones. And the thing about Michael is like, if you had done any kind of reading like that, you could go to him and, you know, bounce it off of him. It is really like an intellectual older brother like that. Like there was nothing you could throw at Michael that he didn't have a perspective on. It couldn't sort of coordinate you in a, in a certain way on it. Um, yeah. Yeah, and you guys had such incredible chemistry. Um, I love that about TMBS because you would get uh, news that you wouldn't hear anywhere else. Um, just incredibly important analysis on foreign policy and what's happening in, in various countries around the world. But then, you know, you'd have Stavros on, um, who I knew nothing about until that episode recently uh, where he... and. Um, I love that episode so much because it, it was, we all needed it. Like we all needed to laugh. We all needed to just like take a load off for a second and, and not take ourselves too seriously and just laugh. Right. And I'm like, someone has a show titled come town. Really? Like that's a, that's a thing. <laughs> um, okay. Um, but he had this ability to connect with everyone, regardless of what your background is, regardless of what you're doing content wise. And, you know, you mentioned how he felt like a big brother. And I think he felt like a big brother for a lot of people. Yeah. And he, he appreciated those polarities in the moment, like in that Vivek Chibber uh, Stavros episode, he mentions the, how funny it is that he's doing that. And yeah. also, you know, the first time we had Ronnie Kaz was on the Freedom Fighter, you know, for, in the ANC that he was... Michael loved to interview. First time we had him on Majority Report, 
somebody IM'd right after the uh, uh, interview saying, hey, why didn't you do your right-wing Mandela impression? And, <laughs> and Michael had only been hosting like on his own for about a few months by that point. But he was always very funny and saying like, you know, on one hand, we have people that want me to do this to a guy who actually worked with the ANC as a freedom fighter. On the other hand, like, you know, it's it's great that we developed this sort of community that can appreciate this sort of stuff and sort of what messages and politics are embedded in what he, the comedy that yeah. Michael always did. And one of the things that's amazing about TMBS, and I think Michael understood this intuitively, is that you guys were able to create these kind of, um, I want to say like inside jokes and and little kind of moments, whether it was like using a DJ to create original music and like always came out and like, you know, those kind of like TV tricks, you know, like that's why like every late night show has a band that they talk to and, and, and interact with. That's why they all have like, you know, you create kind of like, it's almost like a club that you belong to. Um, did you guys like talk about that explicitly or was that just kind of, did it just come out like naturally from, from his, just, he was obsessed with broadcasting. Like he loved it, you know? So. Yeah. And like Michael always loved to include us. Like, you know, with Sam, it's easier to go into the um, back seat and let him sort of drive for a little bit. And Michael can drive. Like he loves to, you know, we know how Michael can go to speak for paragraphs and paragraphs, but he always comes back to you. Um, and I would say, like, we never spoke consciously on that. He was just very encouraging of me. You know, he's the person mm-hmm. who started calling me super producer, right? Like, yeah, that was during the Two Dope Boys era. And it's and, and I always kind of I've, I've grown into that nickname a little bit, I guess. Like when I, I first went on the show, I was like, it's super producer Matt Leck. It was like a celebrity. You know, I was like, there he is. It's super producer. <laughs> and. I think like he was always very good at showing that kind of um, affection and encouragement. And like I, one thing I, I do want to remember to say is I'm glad that we had certain moments of triumph over the past like year and a half, like where we could get sentimental with each other and tell us tell each other what we meant. Like L.A. was a big uh, moment for that. And I also am really glad that I was able to tell Michael that I read his book. Um, yeah. We, Me too. He puts out so much content. You know, I even seen the Mill Valley thing start to finish. Like, and when you work with somebody, it makes it easy to forget what you value in that time together because it becomes a product. And he, the thing about him is he genuinely cared that I read the book. Like, I couldn't have, I could, it wasn't something where I could say, yeah, I read it. And it, just because I glanced at it, like he wanted to talk to me about what I thought about it. And it, he cared so much. And to see this huge outpouring from him after, that he would have had maybe some inkling of, but he wouldn't have guessed like that variety would be writing him up. Right. Um, I just, I just, um, I appreciate that he, that he, you know, we, we cover all these figures like Patrice Lumumba and, you know, all all these, it's just too much, too many to mention that Michael made like his pet hobby to bring to the people. And we talk about them so much. And then seeing all the messages over the past few days, it's like, you don't realize that for certain people he became, something like that um that like open their world to politics that help them like think about these things and like we never i would say like none of us had any appreciation of that element even though we we knew what we were doing we would consciously like you know go against clicks for something more with more depth we never knew how much it had come to fruition i guess at this point and i'm just appreciative of all the people he put me in contact with because um, it's a solemn task to try to keep this show alive. Um, and you know, we're going to try to, that's what his family wants and people closest to him want. And I, I think it's what Michael would want. And he leaves such a, a gap in, in all these things and wisdom and enjoy 
that yeah. it's it would it's going to be so hard but it would be he put me in contact with the, you guys like so many people that I never would have been in contact with that like he actually gave you a blueprint of how to kind of you know pick up yeah. the pieces a little bit yeah you know it's uh, one of the things that I keep thinking about well let me just back up because when the coup happened in Bolivia I, I didn't trust any news source. I mean, I'm not going to read the New York Times about the coup in Bolivia. That's ridiculous. <laughs> um, and so I remember wanting to cover the coup on the Young Turks, but there were no sources that I trusted who had said anything about it yet. And then finally, Michael puts out his video. And I was like, boom, this is someone I can trust. This is someone who can contextualize what's going on. Um, and this is someone who's going to be clear about here's what we know for sure. And here's what my gut is telling me. And his gut was right because he has, you know, the the again, the historical context to put everything in its place and to really analyze things with the proper information. And, um, you know, I, I was loving his content on China. You know, in a recent episode of Majority Report, he interviewed uh, someone about the U.S. and its relation to India, why Donald Trump is so close with Narendra Modi, and how that relates to foreign policy in regard to China. And it was just such a great conversation. And you're right, Matt. I mean, those are the kinds of conversations that don't get the clicks. But for people who actually care, it, that kind of content is so valuable. And it's, I mean, it doesn't exist anywhere else. It really doesn't. I mean, you might get a little bit of it, a, a little bit of it with democracy now, but that's really about it, you know? And it's just, I'm, I'm mourning the loss of a friend, um, but I'm also mourning the loss of content that I, I, I don't know if, if, you know, anyone else is really as capable as Michael. No one is like Michael. No one is as well-read as Michael. And so, yeah. you know, it was just important to get that uh, perspective. Huh. All right, did we, we lose lost Ma him. Matt? All right. Yeah. Um, it's just tough. I don't know. It's, um, but we do, do we have David on by any chance? Hey, David. Um, this is David Griscom for all, those of you who uh, might not know. Uh, David, uh, you know, you're such a big part of the Michael Brooks show. Um, your economic reports were among my favorite because I care about uh, what's really happening with the economy. And you just uh, you provided a lot of important um, perspective on that show. And I know that you were also close with Michael. Um, so, you know, let me open it up to you. Yeah, well, thank you, uh, Nando and Anna. It's really an honor to speak with you all. And, you know, thank you, everyone else who's listening. It's been this week has been more difficult than, you know, it's hard to put words to it. But this community and everybody coming together has been really meaningful and inspiring. And, yeah, um, you know, there's so many things to jump into with Michael. I wanted to take a little bit um, towards the middle to talk about one of the projects that we were working on. But I just want to start to remember him as my friend. First, and, you know, Michael really uh, took me in. Um, I didn't start with TMBS. Uh, I came in around like their fifth episode or so. And we just sort of, we actually just met um, one of my professors at university was a good friend of his. And he just set me up with a, you know, coffee date with Michael and just to pick his brain. And we started talking for about two minutes. And then I mentioned how I was getting really frustrated uh, back at school because all my friends were obsessed with this moron, Sam Harris. And... <laughs> 
Michael loved that. And um, we just shit oh, yeah. on nerds for about 25 minutes. And then he told me that he was working on this project and he'd love for me to come in and help out in some way. And, you know, that relationship, um, you know, it accelerated very quickly. And then I became a, you know, full member of the show and this project. And it, it meant a lot because at that time, you know, I was just like a lot of other young lefties. I'd written a couple pieces for Counterpunch. I was still trying to find my way. And, you know, he had read all my pieces in Counterpunch and he told me how much he appreciated them and, and thought they were interesting. And just getting that kind of confidence from somebody uh, really meant a lot to me, you know, early on in my career. But, you know, and, and beyond that, like, you know, I think Bashkar was mentioning this and as was Matt, you know, whenever I'd come into the studio on Tuesdays, the first thing Michael would say to me is like, how are you doing, brother? And it was like a real genuine space. Like he wanted to hear. Yeah, it wasn't like, how you doing? It was like, how are you doing? Yeah. And you sometimes you really felt like you needed to answer with something. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, and that kind of uh, caring is so important. And I know, especially these past few months, he was really vibing with the Che Guevara quote, uh, you know, the true revolutionaries inspired by a great feeling of love. And I felt like he really brought that um, to his politics. And But I also think it's important, too, to remember, like, he had a lot of love. He had a lot of love for working people, people who had, you know, the, the boot of the system on their neck. But he had the right kind of hate, too. Like, he knew who his enemies were, and he was prepared to fight and stand up for people, which is something that a lot of people have a hard time balancing, actually like having a lot of love and and kindness and caring for the people around you, but also being prepared uh, to fight when it's necessary. And um, I guess just one more thing before I want to talk about this, uh, you know, political project, um, you know, a lot of people who have been reaching out to me have also mentioned that, you know, Michael was very instrumental for them. Uh, he was always highlighting smaller uh, producers' content that wasn't getting a lot of views, new writers, people like that. And he'd always say to us, he's like, we're all colleagues. And, uh, you know, that was a really amazing spirit that so many people um, have been, you know, sending to me. Just like I talked to this guy who was, you know, someone I looked up to as one of my idols, and he just talked to me like any other person. And, you know, that's something that's really beautiful, and I think we should all, you know, take with us um, going forward. But, you know, I, I also just want to, you know, one more thing about the content, too, is like, you know, he did meld like the humor with the serious political analysis. And that was so much of what we were doing before. I mean, it really was like hang out with us at, at a bar because, you know, we would sit down and have a beer and we'd have a really serious conversation about Lula or politics or Marx. And then 10 minutes later, we'd be joking about something. And then 15 minutes later, we're back into the politics. You know, that kind of like consistently building conversation that seems to be going all these different directions. But at the end, you actually see that you were um, building to something. It's something that, you know, I really look up to him in all of his, all of his work. And, you know, a lot of people, especially lately, um, you know, we were getting, we were all really frustrated uh, with the end of the Bernie Sanders campaign. We put so much into that and we really believe in the project. And we started to take a, take a step back and look at some of the mistakes we had made, some of the mistakes that the left was making. And, you know, pe some people were thinking that we were being too negative or too critical, but it's like, it was only because we had such a passion uh, because Michael knew what it was like to be without that. He knew that these systems um, were really exploiting people. And it's something that, you know, we share a background in that as well, that I always really appreciate that we were able to talk honestly about what it's like actually, um, you know, to not know, um, you know, where you're going to be living or to be without food, to have to rely on, you know, government programs to get by and know that this is a real fight and we just can't play around. You can't just claim easy victories. And I know that's not always like the most fun, um, perspective to have, but you really can't because, you know, you start messing around, you start like, you start making yourself weak and expose yourself um, to a lot of the things that uh, we should have seen coming. 
And yeah, if I have a second, I just wanted to yeah. mention Michael and I were, um, you know, I don't know if people like my role on the show. I, I helped him a lot. Uh, we wrote the shows together. Um, and that was such an amazing experience. I don't, you know, for people who have ever co-written anything, it's a really difficult task. It's not an easy thing to sit down with somebody and to deal with a, you know, political question, especially for people like Michael and I, where we have really strong opinions and they would be a lot of really amazing things came out of them. And sometimes, you know, we would be fighting a little bit, you know, during the day trying to get something right, but it was such a beautiful uh, relationship uh, with writing that I just know that, uh, you know, I'll never be, I'll never be able to have that again with somebody because we really knew each other's minds um, so well. And, I'm really blessed, though, because we have been working on a book together um, these past two months, a TMBS guide. And it was sort of the idea of it was to sort of capture the main arguments that we've been trying to make in the in the show. And I'm so happy to be able to have that template and to hopefully be able to do something in the future. And I just want to mention, um, you know, on Sunday night, I mean, the guy was always working, too. That's another thing that was so incredible about him. He was always on and he sent me a, you know, a draft of it and. Um, I just wanted to hit uh, some of the the four points that he really wanted people to know. Um, you know, f- number one to him was, you know, anti-essentialism and the work of Adolf Reed and folks like that, that we need to get um, out of a kind of thinking that prevents us from being flexible in our understanding of people. And also that doesn't um, try to encapsulate whole populations of people with some kind of framework, or we have to understand that everybody's dynamic and you just can't have these kind of broad based understandings of what people are. Uh, two was internationalism, which we all know. Um, but, you know, the internationalism with Michael was was beyond just like covering just things that were happening in other countries. There was a class perspective to everything. And in the same way that he said that everybody was colleagues, um, he meant that internationally, too. That's why we learned so much from leaders like Lula and uh, Pepe Mujica and folks like that, because we saw everybody as a part of this global struggle in the sense that I feel like a lot of people in the American left don't have the same kind of a community or perspective. And it's something we desperately need to build. And, you know, and, and three, you know, we were really focused on trying to build a, you know, a healthy culture. He really didn't like, you know, the kind of cancel culture stuff that was going on. He didn't find it to be productive. That never meant that he wasn't prepared to criticize somebody or to, you know, to attack the horrible systems of racism and sexism. It was uh, uh, trying to find a deeper understanding of how we interact with those systems in the first place and try to, try to also understand that we're all flawed and none of us are, are perfect in this kind of fixation that some people have that we're going to take down all these people is not a way that you actually build a left that's looking to include as many people as possible. And the last one is, uh, you know, is about uh, getting real about ideology, um, which is such a, a factor that we're all sort of trying to traverse. We, you know, we grow up in a system where you think if you work hard, you earn all the, you know, all the money that you get, you deserve, right? And we grow up in a culture that worships billionaires and we have to break through that kind of ideology if we ever want to get into, you know, a different kind of um, political uh, system perspective. But working, working with Michael was just such a, a constant blessing and he was always, always really building something uh, beautiful and, and was really challenging to me as a thinker. Um, not only in the sense of just like getting your facts right, but also understanding how to communicate ideas uh, to as many people as possible and not getting so esoteric um, with things that you're actually, you know, becomes almost useless for the vast majority of people to always meet people where they're at, because that's actually where you end up having the most beautiful conversations. And we were able to do that on the show. I loved like Michael was great scripted. 
but he was so phenomenal unscripted. And I loved getting the calls from people on TMBS. You know, we'd have to cover, you know, we never knew we were, what we were going to get, uh, but being able to see him react and be able to jump into all these different discussions was a really beautiful thing. And just, and just lastly, I guess, I also wanted to mention the Bolivia moment um, because I'm trying to remember the triumphs and we've talked about uh, Cornell West and Lula and all these amazing interviews that he's been able to do. But that, that moment with Bolivia, I think was a real moment for us as a show and building our analysis because we were our, the segment I think that you're talking about actually was almost happening live for us. Uh, the, the early reports of, of the coup were happening as we were preparing the show. And we had this moment where, you know, we're trying to sit there and make sure that we come out with the right information and the right perspective. We don't mislead anybody. And we sort of took we it was a moment where we really trusted ourselves in the analysis and the context that we had built. Um, to be able to come in there with a strong analysis of Bolivia. And that's one of the things I'm, I'm actually most proud of over this past year. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you guys did such a fantastic job covering Bolivia and had been doing a, a, an awesome job covering China. And, and I really do hope um, that that type of coverage continues because I know that for serious people who want to know the truth about what's happening with foreign policy, international relations, you just can't rely on corporate media. Uh, it's not truthful and like you know watching tmbs um there's a lot of humility if if you're in media and you actually care about doing the right thing through your work and there were so many moments watching the show where i felt i'm just going to be honest embarrassed you know embarrassed because i would be forced to reflect on how i covered something right and uh but even though I was embarrassed, like he had this ability to make you feel that you weren't being judged, like he mm-hmm. wasn't judging you, um, but he saw potential in in, in informing you and, and moving you in the right direction. And that's what I loved about him on top of, of course, uh, his friendship and his kindness and how warm he was. Um, and you also wanted to share a video uh, of Michael that I thought was really just fantastic. So why don't we take a look at that? We need to talk about the difference between sympathy and solidarity. Having sympathy with working people is important, but it's not the same as people having solidarity with one another. In fact, the theorist, the father of capitalism himself, Adam Smith, claimed that the tendency to admire rich people and despise the poor is the great and universal cause of corruption of our moral sentiments. He understood the moral difference here. He was actually quite persuasive in his moral condemnations of certain types of obscene wealth, even as he obviously was a promoter with massive blind spots around capitalism. In our society, we often demonize poor and working class people and then confuse a sympathy, which might run might counter, runs counter to that demonization with actual solidarity. Our politics need to be built on solidarity. It's not about pity. In Buddhism, there's actually a brilliant teaching on what's called the near enemies. And these are desirable states that are confused with undesirable states. So as an example, one is equanimity with indifference. Dealing with crisis and seeing things uh, in, in life and in the world and dealing with it with some measure of equanimity is great. Having indifference to it is not. Some people confuse that. And they also talk specifically about confusing compassion with pity. Pity is separating yourself from the action. It's fundamentally condescending. It's fundamental distinction making. It is not we're actually in this together in, as an example, a shared class struggle against the capital class. 
I really love that clip. Yeah, vintage Michael. You know, well, who else does that too? Yeah, who else does that? We go from Adam Smith uh, to uh, to Buddhism, and then after no that, one. we go to Lula, and then end with Gramsci. Yeah, right? it's just, no it's one. A great yeah, yeah, gallery yeah. Of, of thought that it was so. Yeah, he was so inspiring to work with. David, thank you for you know taking the time to come on here and, and share your experiences and your love for Michael. Um, keep up, keep up the great work because you know you and Matt um, were a huge part of that show, and I hope that um, you guys are motivated and encouraged to keep going um, because you bring your own talents to the table, and um, you know this shouldn't take away from that. Thank you, love to you all. All right. Uh, so uh, lo- we have lots of people uh, for the show today. So why don't we move on um, to our next guest? Uh, we have Dustin Guastella on. Uh, Dustin, thank you for joining us. Hey, everybody. Thanks for having me. Um, I'm sure you're all familiar with Dustin. Um, you know, he's done lots of work for uh, Jacobin. But for those of you who might be tuning in for the first time, he's the director of operations uh, for Teamsters Local 623 in Philadelphia. Um, I know that you collaborated quite a bit with Michael. So I wanted to give you uh, some space and an opportunity to you know, share your memories with him. Yeah, thanks, Anna. I mean, you know, I was really honored to be asked to do this. I mean, I only met Michael this year, uh, but we became very fast friends. And, you know, after a few conversations with, with him, he invited me on the show and we were immediately simpatico. We were texting and we called each other very regularly, had long conversations about politics. And, you know, a lot of what Michael was interested in was after the Bernie Sanders movement and after the, the end of the campaign, Michael had a very sharp instinct that the left needed to pay a lot more attention to the labor movement and needed to start thinking about how it can be a part of the labor movement. And I think Michael's you know, ambition was that he wasn't satisfied with a, a, a left that had grown, but a left that was still detached from the institutions of working class power. And, you know, obviously he and I were great lovers of Lula. We, we often gushed on the phone late at night about how much we loved Lula and we would kiss our little pictures of Lula together. But that love for Lula was about the fact that Lula really represented, as other people have said, this immense political project of combining a socialist ideology with a real movement of working people. And that was what Michael wanted to do. And that was what he wanted to make his life's work. And I think, you know, I I really think what Michael wanted in the last conversations I had with him uh, before he passed away was for his audience to look like a Teamster Union Hall. For every time he had a, a live show, he wanted the people in the audience to look just like the labor movement, to be a lot, a very diverse crowd of working class people, black, white, Latino, uh, non-college educated, college educated groups of people that all are, are working together to build a world that actually works for working people. And before I met Michael, I was actually, you know, very skeptical of the possibility of left-wing media, especially YouTube and all this kind of stuff, reaching ordinary working people because a lot of the language and a lot of the cultural uh, sort of affect of the, the progressive and socialist left is very foreign to much of working class life in this country. But I believe when when I met Michael, I believe this guy can do it. This guy is the one guy that I think can really break through and get a really quite radical message 
to into into the union halls across this country and broadcast into the living rooms of many ordinary working people in this country. And there are two reasons why I think he was able to do that. Why I think he would have been able to be huge, you know, in 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 that realm. The first was, as everybody said so far, his thinking was incredibly clear, and his ability to broadcast was incredibly clear. He was able to take complex ideas and spell them out and work through them in a very accessible way and in a way that brought you along with the conversation and got you where he wanted you to be. Very few people have that skill. And he, he had that, that skill in spades. But the second reason why Michael was able to do it was because he could bust balls. And anybody knows that to be a good organizer and to be able to really reach people, you have to be able to bust balls. And <laughs> Michael could bust balls better than anybody. I mean, his uh, everybody's heard his his impressions of very famous people, but I think it was it was either Matt or David mentioned like his impressions of his friends. That yeah. was where it got you. If he if he was on the phone with you and he was talking about a conversation he had with somebody else, and then the impression he would do of that person leave you in stitches. You, were, you couldn't get up. And that kind of just pure charisma and pure just infectious ability to draw you in, that was the skill that I, I believe, you know, truly, Bosco said it before, but this guy was incredible in his ability to, to draw people in and to get people, bring people together. And it breaks my heart. I think we've, we've lost one of the greatest and, and most inspiring uh, political voices of our time and one that was just at the beginning of his rise to being a really important figure in, in the left and, and in the world more broadly. Dustin, I know like when I was speaking to him, you know, he would he would frequently mention you as a, a huge source of inspiration for him and 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 and, and the way forward. He, I think you represented for him a path forward in what he saw, as Bowsker mentioned, a left that that he he did not like, frankly. Um, and I, I just want to like you know want to ask about what. What do you think that way forward is now that he's gone? I mean, and the way you describe like how quickly you became friends with him. I mean, that's, I think that's the experience that we all had with him. But I, I want to ask about that. Like how, because that, that's what he would want to know. You know, he saw himself as a political person. He saw his relationships as part of a political project. And that sounds kind of like, it, you know, like it, it's not like transactional, like in, in terms of like, you know, it's going to make money for him. That which, like a lot of people see transactional relationships these days. He saw his relationships as political. So like, I want to ask, like, how, how do you see that going forward? I mean, for me, you know, and, and I think, you know, one of the things that Michael and I talked a lot about was the rebuilding of the labor movement and the combining of the labor movement with what has happened electorally recently with this wave of progressive insurgents. And so the marriage of a labor movement that is able to support these kind of Bernie style candidates that have this social democratic platform and have a pro worker platform and have a left wing populist rhetoric. That's the way forward. Now, how you do that, and this was something that he and I talked about a lot. For me, how, how we're going to have to do that is we're going to have to start actually building up uh, political action committees inside the union movement and, and bringing up a base of, of workers, you know, non-college educated workers to run for office. So it's not just the millennial activist left who is on, you know, who's constantly running for, for these seats, but it's actually... The, the working class itself that's that's pushing forward. And so for me, marrying the the intensity of of the spirit around the Bernie Sanders movement with 
the constituency that we need to actually realize that, which exists in the organized labor movement. That is the task today. And, you know, ironically, unlike Michael's own career, this is a task that's going to take a much slower curve, mm. take a much longer time to do. Uh, and I think, you know, Michael was was somebody that, you know, his his career looked like this, where it was like the sky was the limit. But um, for us, I think we're going to have to do the long, slow work of, of kind of building that constituency over time and developing the kind of leaders that we need to see such that we can actually build a working class movement in this country. And Michael was very aware of that. I mean, he studied Lula very, very closely and learned how long it took for this uneducated guy to become, you know, one of the world's most important leaders and one of the only people in history to do that in a Democrat. He understood that it's going to take some time, but that's that's all I got. I don't think I have a silver bullet for how we how we move forward. Yeah, Dustin, thank you for for taking the time to to share your you know stories about Michael and 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 conversations about how we move forward. And I think Matt is right in in stating that Michael did provide a blueprint, right? And he connected so many people who otherwise wouldn't have the types of communications that we're experiencing right now today. Um, and I think you know it's it's so important to carry through uh, the, the the vision he had, the mission he had. Um, and not forget about it, you know, not to fall back into the usual habits and patterns. Um, and, and the thing that I really loved about him is that he knew the importance of making these connections and maintaining them in order to continue on with this fight. Cause you can't, you can't do it with people isolated in their own little corners, you know, and that's honestly what the elite class wants. And I think that's, uh, what he tried to message constantly when he would, criticize uh, woke culture because woke culture has been weaponized by the elite class to divide us. And it's, it's pretty devastating to see it working on the left. Yeah. Anyway, Dustin, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I think that's right. And I think, I hope all of you, you know, in the Jacobin crew and at TMBS and majority report and elsewhere, you guys got to keep on, um, you know, with that legacy because he would have wanted it that way. And it's absolutely necessary. Dustin, thank you again. Thank you. All right. Um, so do we have anyone else uh, ready to go, Kale? There we go. Joshua. Hey, Josh. Joshua hey, Con Russell uh, joins us now. Um, he is the executive director of the Wildfire Project, and he was a regular on the Michael Brooks show. Um, really loved uh, listening to uh, the exchange of ideas on TMBS with you included, Joshua. Thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. I'm grateful to be here and and just want to appreciate you both for holding this space so well. I think Michael would be really proud. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Um, you know, you you had such an important relationship with Michael. And look, I I actually want to start off with a video uh for for this portion of the tribute because I've been watching a lot of Michael's content, re-watching a lot of his content and you know, I, I identify as an atheist and the hardest part of being an atheist is that when someone close to you is no longer here, you don't have the comfort of they're in a better place. Uh, they're looking down at you. You know what I mean? And so suddenly I found myself wanting to understand his spirituality more. And I came across this clip, which you're featured in. So let's take a quick look at it and we'll discuss. 
there's lots of trash. I mean, religion has done tremendous violence to <laughs> people on the planet, right, obviously. Right. Right. Um, and if we get focused on just critiquing that, we miss out a lot of, on a lot of personal insights about how you can stay in the struggle for long enough, which requires things like sitting with contradiction and, yep. and multiple active truths. Um, or, or, and, and one contradiction is, is like surrender sometimes in, in order to uh, be able to find your agency. Stuff like that is really hard to do if you only have ideology. Right. You know? Absolutely. Yeah. It doesn't have that, that deeper substance that you can draw on, that, that deeper sort of ability. Yeah, and I, think, and I think that's another major thing is like writing out contradictions, dealing with multiple truths, not getting lost in righteousness and posturing mm-hmm. because that's both strategically necessary and it's also necessary for building like an actual healthy emotional culture because that's theoretically right. if we're yeah. trying to generate a prototype of what we want the world to look like. I mean, I certainly don't want the world to look like left-wing Twitter. Mm-hmm. Right? That's what <laughs> yeah. a that's a fucking catastrophe. So yeah. what are we actually, you know, and that is my yeah. as far as I understand that's actually an anarchist idea that mm-hmm. really influenced me. Yeah, like yeah. we have to prototype here what we yeah. want. Yeah. I really love that clip. Um Josh, I just wanted you to share your thoughts. Yeah. Thank you for that. Um, our relationship, my relationship with Michael was fundamentally spiritual, um, which is, I think, why we we got in so deep with each other so quickly. And I'm also glad that in the last year or so, he got comfortable with using that word on his show. Um, he had some ambivalence about it uh, because it turns a lot of people off. And Michael and I often spoke about what a tragic gift it was to live through this tremendous and chaotic historical moment. And um, one of my heroes, Grace Lee Boggs, would often ask activists to um, look at, she would ask the question, what time is it on the world's clock? And Michael knew what time it was, you know. Um, We're living in a great transition of our whole species and uh, ecologically speaking, I mean, and Michael and I were supposed to do our next show on it last weekend. We were just mapping it out. We were, we want to cover spirituality, uh, vision and transition. And um, the upheavals of this period that we're living through now offer me a context to understand Michael's death. Uh, Michael was a person of context. (laughs) Um, He was an intentional reflection of material circumstance and Michael's passing at this moment Um, to me, is an embodiment of the way he held the pain of the world. Um, He found purpose by stepping into the demands of serving humanity in in this time of chaos, specifically. And he understood the larger historical arc that we inherit and the liberatory political possibilities ahead, as slim as they may seem, uh, if we only step into them. And he, he called us all into that potential, I think. And He saw the future as fluid, as unpromised. Um, And even when he and I were relating together around our limitations and contradictions, he always used the word foibles. He's like, I have all these foibles. (laughs) So funny to me. Um, But when we were, you know, we, 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 we supported each other through depression um, and through when we were like scraping to find hope. um, It was an orientation that allowed us to dig for inspiration and his orientation towards that continues to inspire me. And I feel, right now I feel cosmic sadness. Um, 
And as the waves of grief move through my body, uh, I want to honor him by just feeling them, by just feeling them and be and, and observing. And um, <laughs> one of the things I kept challenging Michael about was to just get out of his head. He was so cerebral and it drove me crazy uh, because I was like that for most of my life as like a hard nosed movement strategist. I was always analyzing everything all the time. And I could see how that also um, that mode, his, his sort of on fire brain all the time brought him suffering too. It, 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 it's the contradiction of that kind of brilliance, you know? And, um, and so I would push him to get out of his head and into his actual emotional body. And, um, you know, so my background is in mo movement building. So I, I train a lot of activists. I um, coordinate nonviolent direct action. I build grassroots pressure campaigns. And I would often go on the show to talk about the mechanics of grassroots organizing and, and the mechanics of how to how to build movements, how to build left infrastructure. Um, and that's what I at first thought he wanted me on the show for. Um, and so, um, you know, I, I brought all these kind of top ed organizing lessons and stuff. And in the last week, um, it's just been amazing and humbling to get hundreds and hundreds of messages from people who were impacted by our segments together. And none of them talked about that stuff. They all talked about our talks on spirituality. Um, and, you know, I think it was, I'm learning just now that it, it for, for a lot of his audience, it was a breath of fresh air um, in a way that, that I think in my, in my movement space, I maybe take for granted and, I loved how Michael never let me take it for granted. You know, um, one thread of my relationship with him was the constant grappling with the way that we, we live in a time of tremendous social judgment um, that is categorical and deeply unseeing, deeply unseeing. And there's, there's a violence to it. And it's not just because it does the ruling class's job for them, which it does, uh, but, but it's also rooted in a disconnection from self. And, mm -hmm. um, and it masquerades as politics and it dresses up in left analysis uh, and that that kind of individualistic moral policing um, is just a reflection of the pain of alienation. And um, so we would talk about how the answer to that was not just having a sharper analysis, um, but, but that, that seeing the nuance within is, is, is required to be able to feel the immensity of the contradictions of this historical moment. Um, and that's where the path forward is. You know, it's in the material universalist project of building a society that cares for the needs of all, um, but that the inner work is required to do the external work. And, and he's challenging me to do that right now in his passing, you know, grief moves through the body. And so I'm trying to remember to breathe um, feel my lungs. I'm trying to remember to drink water. I'm trying to remember to stretch, to move the energy through um, and to feel my body. And, you know, Michael and I had a, had a musical connection too, um, especially through our shared love of Jamaican music. And when I first met him, I was like, this guy's so hungry to get out of his head. He doesn't even know how cerebral he is. And I could tell he was ready to cultivate a deeper attunement to spirit, but in like a no BS kind of way. And, and so I, I tried to like, I was like, maybe music is a way in, you know, because music is one of the languages of spirit. Um, and so I remember when he first had me um, on the show um, for, it was like a patrons only like organizing lesson thing. And I sent him as a thank you gift, 
a, a, a diplomat's LP. It was a diplomatic immunity too. Um, and, and it was, you know, I was like, I'll send him a hip hop record to ingratiate myself. <laughs> and, um, you know, I knew he didn't have a record player, but I was like, you can put it on your wall. <laughs> and then over time, uh, I started to just send him records as, as gifts. And we would, we would send each other little gifts all the time. And, uh, I knew I knew it worked out when he went out of his way to display them in the background when he was doing live streams at home. And um, the first time he came over to my house in California, we, we had like a, a boys night slumber party listening to vinyl all night. And that was when we had it was in the context of uh, listening to um, this music that we started to have our first conversations about spirit and um and I was like, oh, okay, you're here for this. You're ready for this. And when COVID started, uh, I was on the main show. It was like the first, I think it was, it was a quarantine show in the very beginning of, of the pandemic. And in the post game, he asked me if I had a music recommendation. And I shared this record uh, from this South African punk band from the 70s. Uh, called National Wake, and they they were um, a multiracial band that was literally illegal under apartheid, and um, it, it it became the first in a music segment that we would do that was meant to uplift people while they might be depressed and at home during quarantine, um, and we we also used it as a vehicle to tell social movement history. So we we talked about these international movements that gave rise to the music, um, but the real purpose of it was to touch people's hearts and. Um, I guess the other, it was also a pretext for me to just start coming on the show weekly. Um, but the, this week, this week for my grieving process, I've been listening to that music a lot and, um, movement songs, social movement songs, uh, I believe are a form of praise music. Um, you know, we get together, um, in the streets and in our meetings and in our workshops. And we, we sing to call each other into vision. Um, and we sing to um, process our trauma of doing this work. There's a lot of trauma that comes from trying to change the world. And, um, and song brings us into both that, the, the, the exaltation and joy, uh, as well as, as processing our pain, which is why, you know, the social movements that are so successful, I think historically have a connection to song and um, in my organization that, 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 that I run, the Wildfire Project, we sing in every workshop. And um, I w I'd love to share a song that's been lifting me up this week. Um, it's from the South African student movement. It's recent, um, which is a movement that Michael admired, uh, that they sang a lot. And um, it's actually, the, the song itself is like a remix of a bunch of songs. You may recognize lines from it, but it tells the story of growing up with parents as workers and then becoming a radical. And um, I, I wanna just invite the audience to try to listen with, with your body, if that makes sense, that, that um, to, to, to uh, open yourself up to letting, letting this song move some of the grieving of, of processing Michael's death uh, uh, through you, through that contradiction of, it's like a celebration song. And, you know that that's 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 part of how grief works is is through through celebration. Let me tell you about the story of my life.
That didn't that didn't touch them way. You know, I, I don't understand how how that would be possible. That was that was unbelievably moving. Thank you for yeah. letting me, me share it for him. Can I share yeah. one other thought about Michael? I don't of know course, yeah, have. of course, of course. Um, you know, my, Michael was so human and so flawed, and um, and but one thing that just stood out to me about him was his integrity. And um, Michael did not tell lies to his audience. Um, and our, our, our shared our shared hero, it was a Cape Verdean African revolutionary, Amilcar Cabral, was, was reminded us to tell no lies. <laughs> um, and we, we, we reminded each other that and often. And, and what that meant to us wasn't what was to not sugarcoat things and to say the difficult things that, that, that you know, to find the bravery to, um, say things that were unpopular on the left. And, um, you know, his commitment to the truth, even when it didn't serve his immediate self-interest, stood out in his field. And um, I think he would want us all to live with that level of integrity. Um, and that even when I disagreed with him, I admired the boldness of his clarity, you know. And, and death can offer clarity. Uh, it can also offer confusion, uh, disorientation, overwhelm, um, existential despair. And and I felt all of that this week. Uh, but right now, I feel only clarity. Um, I feel happy for his spirit. Um, when he and I spoke of death and of, you know, transcending the makeup of these bodies that are given to us on consignment and then return to the earth, um, I, I, you know, it's okay if, if, if others don't, but I know now that um, he's free of pain, free of fear, free of the small-minded pathologies that make up the systems of domination that we call politics, that he's free. And he, he wanted us all to be free, all of us, uh, and to be committed as he was to working for freedom here on earth until we take our last breaths and join him in whatever is next for us. And that he may have gotten there a little quicker than any of us wanted or expected. Um, but then again, he did everything quick and big <laughs> and, um, and he changed the world. Michael Brooks changed the world. He set a lot in motion and, and whenever I feel fatigued and want to stop moving, I'm going to keep going um, for him because 
we don't we don't have time for games. This is the, these these times are are historically significant. And like you said at the top of the show, Nando, like we need to do it. We need to do it. And um, and I'm I'm just so grateful for the way that he's he's nourished me throughout throughout my life. Joshua, that was beautiful. Yeah. Um, thank you. <laughs> yeah. Thank you both. Thank you both. He, he spoke of both of you to me and just like it, the, the way you made him comfortable with himself um, is something I just want to appreciate out loud for both of you for, for the role that you, you played in his life. And I, I look forward to, to getting to connect with you both more too in the future. Thank you for having me on. Oh, thank you, man. <laughs> Fuck me. Uh, I know. I know. It's, it's really hard. Um, um, all right, so let's uh, let's bring Ben on. <laughs> Dude, I'm sorry, Ben. I'm sorry, like we're crying when we bring yeah. you on. It, uh, yeah. I, I held we held it together really well, yeah. like throughout this show. Yeah. Um, yeah. Joining us now is uh, Ben Burgess, who uh, was a regular on the Michael Brooks show, has contributed quite a bit of content already to Jacobin, and um, is just a fantastic person all around. Ben, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Anna. Uh, that's, uh, yeah, I've talked to Joshua a couple times the last week, and um, this is not something we ever got into, but I will say I really wish I could believe what he believes and what uh, Michael believed um, because I do think that he's just gone and um, that's awful. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. It's, it's, it's hard. It's hard. Um, it's, it's the hardest thing to accept. And uh, you know, throughout the week there would be these moments where, uh, where you'd be in disbelief, right? And and we're creatures of habit. And I found myself reading something in the news and immediately picking up my phone uh, to text him to, you know, hear him riff on it or, you know, dunk on someone, whatever, whatever it is. You know, we had that kind of relationship and that realization multiple times over the week that he's he's not there you know you're you're not going to hear from him yeah last last night um you know at the end of the night while I was walking the dog for uh for some stupid reason I started listening I was listening to the YouTube video of that mill series event that you were playing earlier and um he was answering these uh you know sometimes fairly annoying kind of college Democrat kinds of questions <laughs> yeah, yeah. In, in such a like thoughtful and funny way that like, you know, you could tell that he was really concerned with being able to say something, you know, cause it'd be like, you know, it'd be very easy to just, to just like uh, be like super dismissive, right. Of, of some of the things this, these kids are saying and, and, you could tell it was really important to him that he like say something to them that they would take seriously and, you know, and, and would be intersect with their worldview enough. It would mean something to them, but also, you know, but I mean, also obviously he did it with the, the Michael humor and swagger and, you know, and all that stuff. 
and nobody else could do it, you know, the same way. Nobody else, you know, nobody else could bridge that the same way. And, um, you know, that was, a. I mean, obviously for the last five days, you know, I've just been, uh, you know, trying to, to process the, um, you know, the personal loss, but even though that was, you know, that was a political thing, like it's, it was like one of the most painful moments I've had in a couple of days because I, I wanted so badly and it felt so much like I should be able to do this to, to text him, to be like, Hey, I finally got around to watching that mill thing. That was great. And, you know, start talking about it, you know, and uh, there's, there's still this big dumb part of me that thinks he would respond. Yeah, Ben. I mean, I think that the the thing that he that he loved about you, and I think that this was a frustration that he had generally, was um, he hated when the left felt weak and, and and lacking in confidence to engage with difficult questions and engage with our enemies, right? Um, and I think you know you've written a whole book about it. You know, you've he wrote a whole book about it about. No, let is we're going to jump into the gladiator ring and we're going to fight these people. We're not going to do the thing that became kind of in vogue in the last, I don't know, decade or so of left culture, which was like, I guess, like a retreat or like, I, don't, I don't even know how to describe it of like, we don't we shouldn't even argue with these people. Arguing with them is 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 dumb and counterproductive or whatever. And like you get you and him, but we're both very committed to fighting in their terrain, standing up. You know, but I mean, that's one of the reasons why he was obsessed with YouTube because he saw it as a terrain that was dominated by by our enemies, by the right, and he wanted to. He's like, no, I'm going to jump in there and I'm going to fight these people. And and I think that that's that's something. What do you appreciate about you? Is like we have to have the confidence, the security that our arguments are better, our arguments are correct, theirs are wrong, and we got to tell them why. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, and yeah. That certainly, I mean, the uh, that the debug segment that I did on the show was was entirely his idea. Um, you know, I mean, I had no thought of doing anything like that. I thought I was going to like come on a couple times to promote my book, and that'll be that. You know, um, but uh, but also, yeah, certainly, you know, he understood the need to do that. Like he knew how toxic and counterproductive it was to have like these like taboos that we've developed on the left. Uh, against uh against engaging with people you know against against uh you know against going into other people's you know who we disagree with uh spaces and and um and reaching out to to the audience they might have but he also i mean i think the thing that's maybe a little harder to capture is that he he also understood how important it was that like we present a version of the left that <laughs> You know that a a normal person, and when I say normal person, I just that is cool. Yeah, yeah, feels fun and cool, and like something I want to be around. Right, exactly. Yeah, that that that, like people would actually want to hang out with. Yeah, I got that feeling watching the show all the time, which is why you know it's funny. Doing what we do for work, uh, there are days when you know I'll, I'll tell my partner after I'm done with the show. I need to clear my head. I'm going for a walk. And he's like, are you going to listen to the Michael Brooks show? Cause like he, he doesn't understand how that clears your head, but I yeah. would, because it felt like I was having a conversation with really good friends who got it, who really understood. And even though oftentimes the subject matter was serious or intense, 
it was one of the places where I would find it was like a refuge almost because it it felt like, oh, I'm not alone. Like these people not only get it politically, but also they're non-judgmental. They're people I'd want to hang out with, right? And I love that. And Ben, I don't know how you feel about this. I loved your debunk segments, and I hope you keep doing them because <laughs> I've learned so Anna much through them. That's a very segment for sure. It's so good. Like one of my favorite debunk segments was when you guys talked about this myth of education, um, uh, like lifting people out of poverty, and mm. it it challenged my beliefs really um, because I bought into that myth for a long time. And so I'm, I'm just so grateful for the work that you've done um, alongside Michael, the work that you've done, you know, on your own as well. Um, he, I'm endlessly grateful that he's introduced me to so many wonderful thinkers, but you know, the intro to the debunk segment was always like part of my favorite part of the show too, because it was like, yeah. it seemed like Michael was always excited to play the intro song and I, I can't help but um, show you a little clip of that. So let's go to that video. But Ben, first, welcome to the show. Thank you. Secondly, are you ready for your song? Oh, yes. <laughs> I want to go to mockery really badly. I ben, will. So please go. Okay. you got to restrain me. You're going to show us how to argue this is based on data from a bunch of different countries. There's abundant evidence that uh, at this point uh, that that's bullshit. <laughs> I just love that song. So abundant evidence that uh, it's actually bullshit. <laughs> yeah, logic, logic, logic. <laughs> there's, there's so much, like, like just watch it. Okay, first of all, the fact that, like, for the first, like, 50 of those segments, uh, he used this, like, random picture that I think Matt had, like, gotten off my Facebook of me just like lying on the couch with like my dog on me, you know, and, and like a couple times I was trying to, you, you really want to use that? <laughs> like, uh, but, yeah, uh, you know, uh, but then, um, and then like the way that I think by then, you know, I mean, I, I was just sort of, you know, I, I tried to kind of, I tried to just roll with it, you know, and like sort of not like give any energy to like him talking with me about the song, you know? Yeah. Like, oh, yeah. No, let's, let's, let's do it. You know, that little thing where it's like, he, he sees what I'm doing, but like, you know, but like, he's still like just amusing the shit out of himself with it anyway. Like he just does a little snort and then, you know, and then he plays it. <laughs> it was so good. It was so good. But like, you know, that was always followed by such an important discussion on, you know, just long held beliefs that people have on, on issues. And, you know, sometimes it would be on something super serious. Sometimes you guys would like unpack one of the debates that you've had, like a debate that you had with uh, Gavin McGinnis, for instance. And I just loved it. I thought it was such a great part of the show and it introduced the audience to so many important thinkers who otherwise, you know, I know you're in academia. I, I think otherwise most people wouldn't hear about. Um, and it's just such a gift uh, to know you and, you know, to, to hear from you. And I, again, hope you keep doing the debunk segments. They're so good. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Um, yeah, that Gabby McGinnis one, I think you could definitely see something of the way that knowing Michael so well in the last couple of years kind of rubbed off on me because like I, um, you know, for like 10 minutes, you know, I just, I, all I did was like 
sort of ask Gavin, like, you know, obvious. So, so really, you think that if we could, like, when we get a vaccine, if we just do it at market prices, you know, like, 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 as many lives will be saved that way, and you know, uh, people would really just, you know, self lockdown, you know, in a, in a libertarian utopia or whatever. And, you know, he just kind of, you know, he's got a ramble, but I was like keeping like a real straight face about it. And then, like at the end, like he 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 bit that bullet about how, um, you know, like no government intervention. It'd be you know the, the the pandemic wouldn't be any worse. You know, there wouldn't be any more people who would die. And like I just couldn't help it. I just lost it and started laughing. And then he. Uh, <laughs> called me something I probably shouldn't repeat on YouTube, you know, and, uh, ended the, uh, ended the conversation. But, uh, but I, I guess, I guess one other thought, you know, I really, um, you know, I like that you brought up that, um, that debunk segment about, about education, uh, because it's something I've, I've thought about a lot in the last five days. And I, I tried to capture in the, uh, the remembrance I wrote for Jacobin, you know, came out today, um, is even though he did obviously understand that that that's that's a myth that 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 can't work you know that you can't solve economic inequality with education uh and he certainly you know saw through uh all of the you know Horatio Alger nonsense but he also kind of had this totally unashamed and unconflicted way of valuing you know, just, just personal excellence and, and, and trying to live up to your potential, um, that, that a lot of people on the left would be squeamish about because we associate it with, with, uh, you know, with, with right-wingers kind of trying to like weaponize that to like blame poor people for poverty, or we associate it with, you know, the Horatio Alger stuff. But of course he understood that that's, that's incredibly important that, uh, that, that first of all, those, those are, those are values that are just like, you know, good human values, and we'd want to encourage, you know, even a you know, socialist society where maybe like we didn't have, you know, this kind of material scarcity, uh, you know, we'd still want people to, you know, win basketball championships and write good novels and develop vaccines and all that stuff, right? You know, that involves this kind of personal striving. And, uh, and also, you know, that this is just incredibly important to most people, and it's like incredibly stupid to just cede that to the right, you know, to just yeah. be like, you know, yeah, caring about that, you know, is for the other side, right? Why would you mm-hmm. do that, right? And uh, and so sometimes he'd kind of like make a joke about it, like when he would like say things like he uh, judged human beings by whether they were TMBS patrons, you know, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but like, you know, but he was also you know, he was also had this kind of constant, like restless, you know, striving, you know, that, 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 you know, I mean, God, you know, he, he just put out you know, his first book. He just started this show with you, you know, he had other, I, you know, things cooking for, for other new shows and other new article, you know, there were like two articles that we were supposed to write, you know, the night before he, uh, the night before he died, uh, I thought about, calling him to like kind of bug him about nailing down a writing session. So, well, you know, it's getting late, whatever. I'll wait till tomorrow. But, uh, you know, but he was also incredibly, he wasn't, you know, he wasn't squeamish about, about ambition and trying to live up to your full potential, you know? Uh, And, but he was also every bit ambitious on behalf of his friends and, 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 and political allies, people he cared about. Uh, you know, God knows I probably yeah. from that more than anybody, you know, but, um, you know, so it's, it's, it's just, 
I mean, and certainly I think about myself before, before I knew him and, um, and I, I would like, you know, 2017, right. I would maybe like get it together to like write an article for counterpunch once every four months, you know, like uh, <laughs> the last two years, um, you know, being, being able to get so close to Michael, you know, it's like um, there were some certain times I was over at his apartment and we'd like work on some writing project all day and I'd crash at his couch and, you know, we'd, we'd, uh, you know, we'd, we'd start up out in the morning. And then like, I remember there was one of the last times I was over there, we weren't, you know, working on anything at that point. So like, but I just like the habit was so ingrained that like, you know, I got up in the morning, I just took out my laptop and I started working on something, you know, cause uh, you know, cause, cause he had that, you know, by in personal encouragement, by the power of his example, you know, like by, by just like his, his whole like presence, you know, he, he, you know, he really encouraged everybody to, to be like that. And I think some of that, you know, Michael Brooks constant hustle, you know, has, uh, has rubbed yeah. off me and I'm, I'm definitely, um, I'm definitely better off for it and I'm grateful for it. And, uh, also I, I guess, I guess one last thing, you know, I really, I like, I liked that Bhaskar brought up, you know, brought up Michael's uh, hater side earlier. Oh, yeah, and <laughs> just like, oh yeah, you know, it I, was I, one I, of the I, most charming parts about him. It, it totally it was. Right? It was great, super fun. I love, I love the one he like, you know, hated on some nonsense that some ridiculous person on Twitter was doing. It was just hilarious. I loved it. Yeah, totally. And, and that goes back to what I was saying earlier, where you felt like you were among friends watching the show because he wasn't, you know, like some puritanical like asshole. Like he 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 had issues that he cared about. Right there, there were issues that he was serious about. And then he would weave in the imitations. He would weave in um, some of the funny stuff. He would send you text messages dunking on someone. Um, and it, you'd see that human side of him. In fact, um, I, there's one more video uh, that we're going to play uh, w- while you're on with us, Ben. And this is actually a video that Kale found, our, our, our producer. And uh, he loved it. I haven't seen it yet. So uh, let's just take a quick look. Anyways, okay. the I'm point of the bad. debate, Destiny did a great <laughs> job. Astrology is really bad. Shut up. <laughs> Don't bring that nerd shit to my show. And so and, and to, unless in the way we like it. He's bad. Shut up. Whatever. I will, I, will, Libra. I will. I will. So what'd you say? Said he's such a Libra. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Libra. That was such a Libra yeah. thing to say. Um or whatever, whatever, whatever sign says. Yeah, like, I don't. I, I just don't think my personal branding can survive me sitting here listening to stuff about astrology and not saying anything. Well, no, it's all right. I mean, look, it, even if you don't believe in it, it believes in you. <laughs> Get that nerd shit out of here. By the way, I'm also a Libra, and as such, we're the same. We're 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 kindred spirits. Yeah, we're basically <laughs> the same person. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> You know, he would tease me because, you know, I mean, obviously, you know, I've never had any time for that kind of capital N, capital A, you know, new atheism where you think there's like a, you know, there's like some sort of moral or political imperative to get everybody to think what you think, you know, but, uh, you know, but, but I am a, you know, I'm an atheist and I'm a philosophy nerd and, uh, and, and he, I think some of the astrology stuff. I, some of it was just that it was funny, and some of it was that like it was his way of teasing me about not being more open to certain things and the, you know, about spirituality or whatever. But 
you know, but it's also just like, yeah, just, just the way, you know, the way that he is in that clip and the way, like when I first met him, you know, we, we met through our, our mutual editor, Doug Lane. And uh, over the course of that weekend, you know, we met, he, he would, he like developed this like really elaborate Doug Lane impression that he, uh, <laughs> that, that like he, I think it came up to be like 20 or 30 times over the course of the weekend. Cause he had like developed new lines, you know, to like put in it. And then, you know, this is, you know, this is like loving, but rough, you know, this is, you know, this is something he was obviously never going to share with the world, you know, but like, uh, but he actually went as far as to record an MP3 of himself doing his Doug Lane impression and put on and, and set it to like the background music that was like, that was like a typical like thing that Doug would use as the background music of his video. And like he went through all this to send it to two people because he thought it would make them laugh. Yeah. And like you said, I mean, he was not egoless, you know, he was extremely ambitious. He, you know, he could, he could hold those two things at once, you know, and that was often a theme of his thinking and his pleading with people on the left is that we have to be able to hold two contradictory things together at once and be comfortable in that kind of thing. And, you know, he was extremely cocky and, 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 and he had a big ego and he, you know, wanted to a huge part of point. It was, it's a huge part of his charm. It's like, it's, it's the, the ego is what drives him to put himself out there. Like, like the way he did. Um, but then he also held it with this like deep kind of solidarity and empathy with all human beings. They're kind of thinking like the spiritual and like, you know, all natural living things, you know, kind of thing. Um, those two things are not, their intention but they're not it was something that he was comfortable yeah, holding. Their, their, their intention but they're not inconsistent with each other and 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 right. in in his hands you know there was a uh you know like you know it, it all fit together because uh you know he was incredibly ambitious on behalf of himself he was incredibly ambitious on behalf of his friends he uh you know he did um you know uh you know, I mean, God knows how many people told me in the last week that he would, you know, he would talk, talk me up to them. And it always obviously kind of hurts, you know, to hear now, but, um, but he, you know, but he was, he was also at all obviously served this political project, you know, uh, that, that was important to him. And, and I think, you know, he didn't, you know, he wanted to live up to, to every bit of his potential and that wasn't in conflict for him you know, with fighting for a society where, where everybody, you know, nobody was stopped by poverty or, or powerlessness or economic inequality, you know, from, from living up to, uh, you know, to their potential. And, and, it, and it's just such a, you know, I mean, it, it just connects back to, to what we we're talking about at the beginning, you know, about, about how this is, he wanted to uh, present this appealing version of the left, you know, something that, that normal people, by which I mean just people who don't obsess about politics all day, every day, you know, uh, like we all do, you know, would, would, um, you know, would find appealing, would want to hang out with, you know, that like, because, because most people really admire that kind of quality, you know, that, 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 that's, that sort of constant striving, you know, it's, uh, it's incredibly appealing. And, um, you know, and I, I guess I, I think I already said one last thing, you know, a couple of times, but, uh, for real, since I do think it's important, uh, to me certainly that um you know because he did he did die so unexpectedly and so young 
Uh, you know, like I saw a bunch of news reports that said he was 37 because they just subtracted 1983 from 2020. But, you know, his birthday wasn't until next month. Um, and he was a Leo. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> and, you know, and he was just starting to, you know, hit a stride in so many ways. And, and he was so, you know, he was so widely loved. So somebody who all those things are true of is in great danger of being turned into this like two dimensional saint after they die, which I really don't want to do because, um, cause I, I just much prefer to, you know, keep the memory of the human being alive. Uh, so something that I've, you know, that I was remembering this week that, that always makes me laugh when I think about it, you know, um, that's, that's very unsaintly is, uh, after, you know, when I, I was living in New Jersey at the time, you know, and, uh, and so every, you know, whenever I would, I would, um, I would take the train into New York. I meet him in Brooklyn and, um, and, and we'd have dinner, uh, you know, did it, you know, a few times a month. And, uh, and he always recommended this, uh, this one particular Italian restaurant to meet at. And, uh, you know, and after we'd been doing this for like a couple months, you know, when I started like, you know, staying over at his place, I realized that this, uh, this restaurant that he always recommended, and he was always a few minutes late too, right? You know, like 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 Michael was was very often late, you know, late. This restaurant he always recommended that he was always a few minutes late to was literally next door to the building that he lived in. <laughs> <laughs> you're like you're like going across, yeah, state lines. You're crossing state lines, and he's going down, you know, <laughs> down to the street. That's too funny. It's it's such a you know Michael Brooks yeah. power move, but. Uh, uh, and I'm, I'm really, you know, one of one very small thing, you know, out of many, many, many regrets about things we can't do now, by the way, and I really want to say is that um, uh, a few weeks ago when I was texting him about coming on uh, Dead Pundit Society, talk about his book, and, you know, we were kind of joking around about him being burned out about certain things about politics and uh and so I told him, uh, you know what actually be really funny is when you first come on, uh, if um, uh, if if we just for like twenty minutes with no explanation, we just talked about the Sopranos instead of uh, instead of talking about what we're supposed to be talking about, and uh, and then he like immediately like texted back. He's like, actually, not only let's do that, but uh, but let's just start doing like a bonus episode yeah. once a month to talk about the Sopranos and, and I know yeah. it would be a big part of that. Yeah. And uh, since that was like 50% of our non-political conversations were Sopranos conversations. So we'll always, you know, and, and Mike and I met because of the dead pundits uh, this is before you joined the show, but uh, Adam had me on to talk about Spain um, when the crisis in Catalonia was happening and, and Michael saw it and he DM me. He's like, Hey man, I have my own show. Like, and I was reading back the DMS now because I had already been in media and he was like for a while and he was, starting off so it was like very like you know like hey i hope you like my show like check out you you, you can check out some, some episodes and i'm like yeah, yeah yeah i'll check them out i'll check them out i'll go on your show like you know like that's the, you know what i mean and, and, but that's how we met we met through through because he just saw me on dead pundits and and or heard me on dead pundits and 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 liked the interview and, and reached out on twitter and i sent that i sent the screenshots to to adam uh the other day and and to just to let him know that that maybe he didn't realize it and i didn't even remember i, I didn't remember exactly like how we met i just knew that he asked me on the show but i didn't realize it was i went back yeah, and looked I, at it and it was because of dead pundits yeah and i mean i know adam 
you know, I mean, even though he would sometimes express publicly, right, you know, his sort of, you know, little brother inferiority complex sometimes, you know, about Michael that uh, he, uh, but yeah, I mean, he did that, right, you know, and and uh, and he also uh, introduced Michael to Adolf Reed, uh, who, who was probably yeah. the biggest single intellectual influence in, on him, you know, in uh, in the last year of his life. Um, and, uh, so, you know, definitely points for that, but yeah, I just, I don't know. I was just thinking about, you know, what, uh, you know, what you said about ego and, and, you know, I was thinking about the time when, um, back in February, I guess, you know, when there was, there was, there was that last live show that, um, the, the Sunday, you know, at the end of that weekend, um, you know, when, when Michael finally met, you know, my wife, Jennifer, that, you know, that the, the uh, three of us and, and uh, Michael's girlfriend, Theodora got, you know, got together for lunch and, uh, and, you know, just the way that, uh, that, that Jen made some comment about, yeah, it's like every time I pat, you know, every time like Ben's like on, you know, fucking YouTube, you know, it's like always like, he's always either listening to Bernie Sanders or listening to you. And, uh, and Mike was like, no, that's, that's good. That's, 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 that's correct. That's what you should listen to. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, just the swagger with which he said that you know it's just yeah me and bernie the sa- are the same yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's right. yeah. me and bernie sanders same yeah. you know <laughs> yeah oh, thank you so much for doing this Anna. Yeah, yeah, Ben, thank you for coming on. And, you know, um, it just it feels good to connect with people who get it and, and, you know, felt the deep connection to Michael and his work and, you know, the importance of what he was doing. So thank you for coming on and um, keep in touch. Always. All right. Um, so we have one final guest uh, and he's not really a guest. He's a main fixture on this show uh, because he helps produce it every yeah. single week. Um, Kale Brooks. Makes the trains run on time. There it is. <laughs> yes. Hey, oh, Kale. And by analogy. the way, <laughs> um, and even though they share uh, the same last name, they're not related. Um, but Kale, uh, you know, it's been it's been such a pleasure working with you so far and you're just such a great person and you wanted to share some thoughts on Michael as well. So please go ahead. Yeah. Thank you. And thank you both for marathoning today's show that, um, you know, it's been a, it's been a horrible week. (laughs) It's just, it's been devastating and, and incredibly surreal that, uh, and just because everything's in quarantine, it comes and goes, um, as does everything and half of it's a nightmare and half of it's a dream, but, um, so uh, I did a couple things, as Anna mentioned, and to kind of clear up some of the YouTube comments, I am not related to Michael, much to my own dismay um, that I actually only met him about six months ago. Um, uh, and, you know, he's been an incredible figure in my life and doing the show weekly that I've only been on the left for a few years, came in through the, the Bernie 2016 bump. And, and there's a lot to love on the left. And there's a lot that makes you extremely upset and frustrated. And I think uh, Michael being able to balance out both like letting us hate stuff together and then also being such like a, an incredible source of wisdom and patience, um, uh, you know, reminding me uh, of, you know, it's going to be okay. And you have to stay focused on, on certain political projects that matter the most. And uh, I did want to 
I have a clip that I want to share. It's, it's actually, it's not how Michael and I met, but it's how I was first introduced to Michael Brooks. And I haven't been a, a YouTube leftist. <laughs> I'm kind of a reluctant YouTube leftist in the sense that I'm, I would prefer to be back behind the the screen, you know, pressing the buttons. But, um, and I came across Michael in October of 2019 and it came out of this clip actually. So I wanted to, to share this with everyone. I just finished going to the Bernie Sanders rally here in Queensbridge. They didn't bring him out to one mic, which they should have. That was a major missed opportunity by the campaign. Um, I just uh, want to say that it was an incredible event. Nina Turner should definitely be Bernie's vice president without any question or any doubt. Um, I think that AOC gave a great, really, really perfect synthesis in her case for him. He is going to win. Nina Turner should be vice president. She should absolutely be his, t- his pick for vice president, in my opinion. Um, anyways, it's really awkward here. I was going to do a longer stream. <laughs> yeah, I can just picture him like holding the, the phone like up to his face and like everyone on the street just being like, what is this guy doing? You know, like <laughs> he must have felt so embarrassed. <laughs> Well, I and so I'm with my friends and they're like, that's Michael Brooks over there. And I'm like, I don't know who that is. <laughs> so um, so like afterwards went home and, and like found that video and then started watching his other videos. Um, and I think it was around the same time that Michael was like getting into Adolf Reed and was recommending everyone read class notes. And um, Adolf is another massive source of inspiration politically and intellectually for me. And so um it was one of these things where it's like, wait, there's a leftist on YouTube who's talking about Adolf Reed. This isn't supposed to happen. That like he was, he was in and like, in is talking to a popular audience that it like, it's not like some like extremely niche, like sectarian yeah. thing. Like, it's like, he was able to synthesize like Marxism and socialism and kind of the political tradition of the left so brilliantly with uh, just kind of the format and the, the presentation of like popular political education um so much so that i really think like i think we lost the best public political educator of our moment right now and um you know he possessed a kindness and a sincerity and and a passion um that not just the left but really everyone should strive to have um and uh it's a loss for for us who you know who knew him it's a loss for the left to loss for people who believe in a project of popularizing socialism and Marxism and, you know, um, and uh, a world that is by and for working people. I wanted to, if, if you guys don't mind, there was one more clip um, of him talking about Adolf that um, I, I, I wanted to make sure that Adolf was a part of this stream um, in some way. So uh, I'm going to play that and then uh, and we can talk about it. <laughs> As Adolf Reed Jr. said to me once, I loved, he said, what organization in America, I'm, I'm switching to another group of, of importance in terms of, of rights, he said, what organization in America represents more transgender people than any other group in the country? Does anybody know? The AFL-CIO. What did you say? 
Oh, no. Well, okay. No, good, all good. I didn't know it, but it's the AFL-CIO. Who has more concentrations of black woman power and representation than any other groups in the country? Labor unions. If you implemented Bernie Sanders' agenda, which is not, yes, it is a class-oriented material agenda, and good, we need that. That would still represent the greatest racial transfer of wealth in this country since Reconstruction, because we actually all know that these things are manifest, of course, along racial lines. That's another reason that this woke stuff is so disgusting. It teaches Mike Bloomberg to say, I recognize my privilege. Okay, great, awesome. You, can I keep my money? It's bullshit. And I think that there are people in the media class who are totally, look, they're wealthy. Great, let's all sit around and check each other's privilege and come up with new discourses and new ways to terrorize people and control people. Let's have pogroms in each other because you said the wrong thing or you did a mistake. You got to get rid of all of that shit. I love that clip. I love that clip because it's, you know, and it's wrong that it's so taboo on the left. Um, and I don't understand it. Like, I, I, I remember having a discussion with Michael. You, you were a part of it, uh, Nando, over text, where, you know, Adolf Reed was rejected. Um, he was supposed to give a talk, and the talk didn't end up happening. I, I, I don't want to get the facts wrong of, of how it went yeah. down. I remember um, that, yeah. Yeah, and I just remember, like, being befuddled at the controversy um because even if you disagree with adolf reed like this notion that you can't have the discussion because people on the left are too offended or too hurt or too sensitive to hear ideas that challenge them and if if you're that type of person then we're not going to win like you're not going to be part of a winning strategy you know I'm sorry, like this, this, this has been frustrating to me for, for a long time because it's not just about the Adolf Reed stuff, but it's about people positioning themselves as weak and I can't fucking stand it. I can't stand it. I can't stand Elizabeth Warren making women look weak, whining and crying about like, oh, Bernie Sanders told me a woman can't win. First of all, I didn't believe her, didn't believe her. I don't think that conversation ever happened. But secondly, here's a woman who has a real shot at getting nominated, right? Might not be my personal favorite candidate, but you're on a national stage representing women in a weak, pathetic way. And I can't stand that shit. Um, I just, we need to be strong and we need to stop presenting ourselves as these little weaklings that need to be like caressed and protected. No, this is, this is, a class war. And if you're on the side of weakness, you're not going to win, period. Yeah. Yeah. And we, you know, we lost a, a major general this week. And so, you know, and, and you know, amidst lots of grief, um, one thing I will say is that there was a, a feeling that came over me a couple days of like a couple days ago that I need to be so much better at what I'm doing that I need to be working on the projects that I'm doing through Jacobin and elsewhere um, because, you know, we now have a responsibility to carry on the the output that Michael can't now. And so whether it's through some kind of local organizing, whether it's through agitprop, like what we do, or you find ways to make yourself useful for, 
for the projects that matter to you, particularly the political projects, um, in the way that Michael did just so recurrently, day after day, week after week, so much. It's just like that, you know, like the guests that we had on now and, and people that know him well and, and have been working with him that just we're all sharing like, oh, yeah, we were working on this other project with Michael. I was writing this thing. I was building this other thing I was working on. Like he was doing so much and holding up so much for the left right now. Um, and, you know, as uh, as Matt said earlier, we now have a gap in our wisdom and in our joy. And I would add in our uh, political practice. And uh, it's up to us, I think, to continue that. I, yeah, I, yeah, I absolutely agree. We will. Um, that's, that's all I got. <laughs> but I appreciate you, you. Me. Yeah. Really appreciate it, man. Yeah. And, you know, um, yeah. I, I, and just, I just want to say, like, it's been um, wonderful working with you. And, um, you know, we're going to continue working together in some capacity, as, as Bashkar mentioned earlier. Uh, we don't want... Um, this tragic thing that happened to stop uh, the momentum and we're going to keep going in, in, in some way. And so you guys will have more information on that as, as we move forward with this show. Um, and, you know, uh, TMBS will continue in some capacity because as was mentioned earlier, uh, that's what his uh, family would want. And um, yeah, I, I, I don't think we're going to stop. I think that we're going to keep going and we're going to keep learning the lessons that Michael really wanted us to learn. Um, so thank you, Kale. Uh, thank you, Nando, for uh, doing this with me. I couldn't imagine doing this with any other person. And thank you to everyone who's watching, um, who was supportive of Michael's work, who's supportive of Jacobin, who's supportive of uh, leftist media, because not a lot of it exists. And uh, your support really does go a long way. Please subscribe to this YouTube channel if you haven't done so already, and make sure you uh, support all of the wonderful, uh, you know, thought leaders out there who contribute their work on Jacobin by subscribing to the magazine as well. Um, thank you, um, everyone. Stay strong, and we'll see you soon. Mm -hmm.